0: This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Mindforce, Hope Dies in the City, off their EP last year, which was Swinging Swords, Chopping Lords. This band really does it for me, especially after their performance at FYA, The Church Show in December. This is clearly one of my favorite modern day hardcore bands. Jay Peta is absolutely fantastic. The whole vibe and sound is incredible. I think it ties in well with the whole Richie Birkenhead sound. And I'm really happy that the boys let me put this on the track to start off the show. Thank you to everybody who has supported me since day one and everybody listening for the first time. If you would like to support this podcast, one of the easiest ways that you can do so is become a member of our Patreon. We have three separate tiers at this point where depending on how much you wish to give, you get a little more, you get a little less. But we get the support, and that is very appreciative, especially in trying to expand and continue to do what I'm doing right now. And I can promise you that the extra content that we're doing is not taken from the episodes that you hear on this stream. This is all extra stuff, and there's no paywall where we stop the conversation you have to pay to hear the rest. My regular shows are going to come out for free every Friday. What I'll give you is extra stuff. I'll give you things that'll be coming out a day or two before for those who are impatient and don't want to wait till Friday. And as we grow this thing, I'm very open to ideas how to make your Patreon experience worth it and give you value for the money that you're investing into the show. Thank you very much. And I look forward to what we do with the now Patreon section of this podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash this is hardcore and in all our links we're going to try to raise some money for our friend rob at brass city printing his mother has been diagnosed with cancer and she's going to be needing surgery soon i'm going to post a link up where you can go ahead and get some pre-order shirts to help offset the cost of the surgery and we're going to keep his mother in our prayers thank you real quick thank you for all the support on the last 30 episodes and specifically last week's episode Big shout-out to Sonny for helping me with the video. I hope you all enjoyed that one. It'll be quite some time before we release video episodes. I got a lot to learn, gear to get, and things to think upon to make them worth doing. My focus is going to be on making sure that content comes out every single week on this channel. It gets better, sounds better, and also that it's available a day or two before it releases To those who decide to jump up and join the Patreon thing that we've started. In these run of episodes, I would like people to hear some great stories from folks who really took Hardcore, put it on a different path, who were legitimately very invested and saw where Hardcore came from and where it was headed and chose to just take it a little off the regular path. And kind of, you know, do something that we hadn't heard yet. And something that has come to me in thinking about all this is just that Hardcore had a run for about 10 years where the formula was very standard and there was almost like a genre setting rules to it. And that wasn't the case at the very beginning. And I feel like going into 1990, I think people wanted to break away from the, all right, everyone kind of has to say on one of two or three, maybe four different styles. And so that's why people like Richie Birkenhead and Walter are important in this story following Paris. And I am really excited for you to hear Richie's story from his very beginning, which was pretty unique and interesting in how he fell upon the New York hardcore scene too doing Underdog, which to me is still one of the most unique and very uh, talented sounds. I mean, especially in 1985. I think that that band really stands out as just such a, such a unique band, and people still love them to this day. And his stories about being in Youth of Today, the Break Down the Walls tour is absolutely fucking fantastic. And then what he did with Into Another and the major label stuff... This is a great interview, and Richie is a hell of a guy. And this was an awesome conversation that flew by on our end to record. And we were kind of shocked, like, holy shit, look how long we've gone already. And um, I'm really excited for you to hear it. So let's rock and roll, guys. We're talking to Richie Birkenhead, who is someone in New York hardcore that I feel gets left out of the original picture. And when I talk about this, long before he would be in bands like Underdog and Use It Today... He was in his own bands as the formation of what would be New York Hardcore happened. And just someone who throughout his entire time in New York City music has seen so many different um, eras and flows of how the music began and where it went to. And I'm really excited for this conversation. Richie, thank you for coming on the show. Joe, thank you
1: so much for having me. This is uh, I'm honored to be here.
0: So it's we we often hear about New York Hardcore and the Lower East Side. And one of the things in reading about you and your personal life, you actually came from the Upper West Side.
1: Yeah, I, I did. And I, I actually, you know, I've always, um, I've always, I think, purposely put myself on the fringes of, of everything and every scene. I've never, I've never wholly embraced any mass movement or any scene, but um, but I was drawn to uh, New York hardcore at a time when I was actually uh, playing a different kind of music. I w- when I was in high school. I was in a kind of a psychabilly slash rockabilly band, and uh, there were just guys in my school that were into hardcore. Um, I went to McBurney High School. Uh, Adam Horovitz went there. He was in the Young and the Useless, and and uh, and I used to go see those guys play. And 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 before that, the first actual hardcore show I went to, and just you know, my life changed was, uh, was in 1981. I went to see, uh, the bad brains at Maxis, Kansas city. And, um, and actually the, the beastie boys pre pre Harvitz being in the band, I, uh, you know, um, were one of the opening acts uh, as just a side note, but. I can't tell you what them, that moment was like when the bad brains first started playing and, um, you know, I'd been to other I'd been to other punk shows. In fact, in in the late '70s, my brother brought me to see the Ramones, and and I'd seen the Dead Boys, and I I'd seen a lot of punk, but this was something completely different. And and I think the only thing that existed at that time was the pay to come seven inch. And and at first I'm like, who are these like ska dudes on stage? And then they just they just started playing and every single human body in that place in unison just started moving in in a way I had never seen before. And I I still get goosebumps even just talking about it now. And I was just like, you know, this is it. It spoke to me like nothing else. And it it was more raw and visceral than anything I had experienced prior to that. So yeah, that was my first like deep plunge Uh, in 81 and then I and and essentially I was just I was a fan mostly until you know I started fucking around with friends and 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 writing hardcore songs and stuff but that wasn't until like 83 and 84 writing stuff and then around that time formed a band called the numbskulls and and started playing out and then that that band eventually morphed into into underdog
0: now usually when we start these things I I always like to find out the kind of person that we're listening to and speaking with. Now you were born in the mid sixties. So by the time you were able to like, listen to music was right around the period of the Vietnam war. What was the kind of music actually in your house before you even got into high school? And like, what drove you to get to McBurney high school?
1: So I, I, uh, I grew up listening to a very, very broad range, broad spectrum of music. My, my mother is a, a a lyricist and a composer and a, a pianist, and you know from her I was exposed to you know everything from early jazz to all the great American songbook standards to you know theater music and and uh, and my dad was a was a classical music aficionado, so I was you know. Um, listening to a lot of that before I sort of started developing my own taste, which was probably around age six or something. And I had two older brothers. So, you know, it was kind of a natural progression of, it started with everything from uh, the Beatles and Bowie and the who and Pink Floyd and, you know, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. I got into every single, you know, seminal rock band, like deeply, deeply into it. Um, Loved all those bands, the Stones, uh, you know, and and a little later on in the in the seventies, got into bands like Slade and the Sweet and and a lot of that uh, British kind of harder sort of glam stuff, and then uh, I guess around 77, 78, a friend of my brother's um, who used to always put me onto this these radio stations these little you know like college radio stations and power stations that were playing punk rock he he finally sat me down and and had me listen to the first ramones album like front to back you know the one that came out in 76 and i I guess it it was probably around that time because it was a it was a new record and you know that's something i fell completely in love with but the thing is i never lost my love for pretty much every genre of music like you know to me, it was like 95% of, of artists making music in any genre suck. But there was always that like creme de la creme that were great in in any genre, really. Um, so it wasn't like when I got into punk, I stopped listening to The Beatles. You know, I didn't. I didn't stop listening to anything um, that I loved. So I've, I grew up listening to a very, very broad range of music. When when, when I was going to high school, um, you know that was at a time you know I, I was in high school from 79 to 83 and during that time you, you could go to clubs and you know they it, it was pretty much up to whoever was at the door if they wanted to let you in my friends and i always got in and from that point you were just in nobody carded you when you know when i was 16 i looked like i was 12 so it's ridiculous that they did that and i was playing in bands when i was 15 i was you know um playing in that rockabilly band we were called the bel airs and and we played max's we played the mud club we played the peppermint lounge we played all those old clubs um i got to be around a lot of new york figures um you know not just in the hardcore scene later but everywhere i mean going to clubs in new york you know you'd, you'd be around andy warhol and lou reed and laurie anderson and you know if they were in town you'd see like uh, Steve Bader's and Cheetah Chrome. If the you know if the Dead boys were playing in town, I remember seeing them in the VIP lounge at, at Peppermint Lounge a week that they were playing CB's or whatever. So, you know, it was always around music um, and always around that scene, and and I immersed myself in New York nightlife at a very early age, probably a lot earlier than I should have, and grew up very quickly.
0: Something that Paris had said, and was echoed by a couple other New York hardcore guys. <clears throat> Is that the Lower East Side was somewhere a fourteen-year-old could walk into a bar and most likely get served, and so, yes. it, and so what you said just uh, echoes what he said. Something yes. that um I, I find it interesting because you don't hear so much about the psychobilly rockabilly time frame involved in hardcore. But uh, for those listeners don't know what he was talking about, the Peppermint Lounge, which was booked by Peter Lowry, Max, uh, not, not booked by Peter right but um. The Max a book by Peter Lowry, Peppermint lands you over know, the first rooms to begin like what would be the burgeoning New York hardcore scene. And it yeah. came from what he's talking about with Andy Warhol and that era of um, I don't know. I don't know the, the right term for it, but it seems like everything that's written about that time is that there was a flow between the 19 the mid 1970s punk rock era and Andy Warhol part of New York. And then as things started shifting away, that's when the emergence of like this more aggressive sound started coming out. And that was in New York hardcore. Do you think as someone present in these rooms as hardcore was emerging that you heard that term or was that something that came like later, like in 80, 81? The term hardcore. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, often, I guess maybe it was around 81. You you would sometimes hear hardcore punk, you know. Sometimes people would call it, like, loud fast.
0: Loud you know, fast. Like, literally.
1: Yeah, people, I remember there were like, you know, or you'd read articles in The Village Voice about, you know. And, and they were mixed up sort of bands, you know. Um, before there was a cohesive New York hardcore scene, there would some, some, sometimes there would be bands from out of town, from the West Coast that were we're punk, but we're playing, you know, loud, fast punk rock. And, and uh, you know, Harley was in the Stimulators yeah. before, hardcore, before hardcore existed. And they were, you know, one of those kind of post-punk New York, like incredibly interesting bands that was, you know, just a little bit more aggressive. And, and, and there were a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I think the first time I heard... The term hardcore was probably around that time, around 81. And I used to listen to Noise the Show a lot, okay. which, uh, you know, Tim Summers. And, um, you know, and he would play basically anything that was loud and fast, including Motorhead. You know, he would he would group Motorhead together with, you know, whomever, the Nihilistics or, or you know, just New York hardcore bands. And it was totally cohesive. It completely fit. So, uh, but yeah, I think that's probably around the time I heard the term. And it's funny because, you know, even though the, the word mosh became just fucking awful when it was like appropriated by, you know, anthrax and whomever else, I remember actually hearing that word before I heard it in hardcore in going to see like reggae toasters and stuff and like at like dub shows and, and, and uh, you know, all these after hours clubs in New York where you know, you hear this uh, like real roots reggae, and uh, you know, and you and you and basically it was the word mash with a Jamaican patois accent, you know, like mashed on the system and all that. And and so it's funny, I heard mash first from reggae, and then later on in hardcore. So it leads me to believe it was probably likely that it, it came in vis a vis the Bad Brains that word, but uh, but hardcore I think just grew out of people calling. Louder, faster, punk rock, hardcore punk, you know, and I'm sure that was happening all over the place.
0: No, that's actually the first time I've heard that um, potential etymology of Mosh. That's actually excellent. Um, for me, when I, when I think of what you were up to at that time, you obviously having such a diverse interest in music, what was the, what was the contrast and comparison to the music that you were playing with the Bel Airs and with the scene that you were involved in? And what was coming out of the loud, fast stuff that was coming out of that era?
1: So, I was drawn to the whole kind of rockabilly, psychobilly thing. Probably mostly by the Cramps. I still loved actual, real rockabilly music. I loved, you know, aside from like the superstars like Gene Vincent and Eddy Cochran and you know, and all that. I I listened to a lot of obscure roots rockabilly just just because I I played guitar and I loved. Scotty Moore and I loved you know just playing those those riffs and you know and I loved a lot of stuff I loved old rhythm and blues and um but but it was it it was the the cramps and it was Lux Interior in particular that um really drew me to that sort of subgenre. um and you know I was really into into that stuff but I was also into a lot of bands that were playing in New York at that time including you know some of those weird bands on like, you know, 9-9, you know, bands like Conk and Liquid Liquid and that were doing this like really ethereal, trippy kind of club music, but not with, you know, s- sequencers and, and synthesizers. And um, so, I mean, it, it, for me, it was always like this big salad of genre, of different genres. But when I started playing live, you know, <clears throat> for me, I was basically like channeling you know, poison ivy and Lux Interior, and and uh, and kind of fanning out on you know the bad brains and stuff like that. And then it just uh, it just kind of welled up in me. I, I just wanted to you know at at some point I would guess around 1982 or something. I, I thought you know it, it, I I, w- I want to stop kind of playing this this resurgence and uh, reshaping of an old genre i want to you know it, it just to me hardcore felt so much more organic and and just visceral and it was it was much more cathartic for me to just even go see it and just like collide with people and and so it was just like a natural organic uh kind of segue from you know trying to be like the cramps to uh just wanting to you know scream my head off and uh and just like exercise every demon and uh and and go through that catharsis that i think only hardcore can provide like a confused you know angst ridden kind of young adult full of latent rage you know so
0: yeah i feel that the les at that time is always painted as this like Dystopian destroyed buildings all over the place, and, and yet these little buildings existed where punk would exist. But what I read about, there's a lot of art and lofts and small spaces that kind of gave those, uh, like we were talking about, like the creative energies that built an organic like sound that came out of all this shit. And so, yeah, it was the lofts and like the different bands, like, especially you said earlier on, like, you know, there wasn't a cohesive New York hardcore sound you know every I mean, there's like a bunch of bands that had their own sort of unique sound they were playing these small clubs and it eventually kind of congealed and became what would be new york hardcore yeah and i wonder as someone who's in high school you know uh, and i mean that school has so many people you know in different um different facets whether it's actors and musicians that have come from it so you're in high school then you come down to the lower east side and you've got art spaces you've got rock clubs you've got dub music you've got dance things you've got so much culture all at once i think it's the ultimate melting, uh, melting pot to yeah, refer to something was, like this
1: yeah i mean lower lower manhattan or even you know everything south of of like 23rd street at that time because i'll i'll even include dan you know and on 21st it was just it, it it was a such a special moment in time you know from from the time that I first became aware of kind of New York culture as like a participant, which would be in the, in the seventies, really just, just under the wing of like my older brother or whatever, until I would say right up until like the Tompkins square riots in in 1988, which was kind of like the curtain coming down and the, and the great crescendo. But that, that moment in time, you know, those like dozen years or 15 years or so were, were, absolutely magical and it was in that in just those few little uh you know square miles um so much was going on i mean it's just uh like you said like a thriving art scene and underground art scene and you know every kind of subculture you can imagine was you know being lived out at its like prime in this you know, this southern tip of this little borough, one of five in New York. And it was incredible. The, the Lower East Side at that time was, and really any, any neighborhood in the five boroughs that had poverty, that had low-income housing, was very dystopian at that time. In in the, in the Carter years in New York, you know, when interest rates were at like 20%, a lot of people fled New York. Um, and New York became something of a ghost town. And New York was it was fucked up, and it was bankrupt, and and you know, like all of the South Bronx was just like shells of buildings with no glass in them because they were just burnt out, you know. Often because landlords just wanted like a quick insurance buck or whatever, and it was, you know, and the, New York was crazy. There were street walking prostitutes everywhere. There, there's even in Lower Manhattan. You used to on 12th Street on the East Side, there were tons of hookers walking around, and if you went into you know, Avenue A, Avenue B, what people call Alphabet City, I mean, it was crazy. There were there were gangs, there were gang fights, it was it was it, it bore no resemblance to the Lower East Side of today, which is, you know, and, and the reason I one of the reasons I, I cite 1988 as a kind of finale, um, <clears throat> that's really where kind of the shift happens, where gentrification finally Sort of wins down there, and and tragically, a lot of really interesting, cool shit starts to just fizzle
0: out. Now we've seen it here in Philadelphia, where some of the art spaces that were really like the home for hardcore in the early to mid nineties are now gentrified places. And kind of you laugh as you walk by, or go, I see in this show that you know. I mean, there's a bar that serves really good food that. Was a huge punk rock place here, so I, I can understand that. I wonder for you, because you were such a young age, if there was uh, that that typical balance of excitement, fear, you know, like the the kind of emotions that come from going down to these places, and then like being. Were you, and you think ever feel you were overexposed to so much of this culture, and then the juxtaposition of all this crazy street shit.
1: Um. Yeah, I think I think a lot of what draws anyone to a subculture is the degree of danger. Um, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I don't know. I was I was I was always drawn to that anyway. I was always drawn to kind of unsafe uh, places, um, and so I, I kind of thrived in that environment. And, and it was very weird for me coming downtown from the Upper West Side, you know, which was just this, just neighborhood, right? Just this sort of like bourgeois neighborhood uh, and just going downtown where it was just, there was just electricity in the air. And, you know, and and a lot of the things that we put ourselves uh, through a lot of the situations we placed ourselves in were incredibly dangerous. And there was, you know, there was no shortage of, of violence that I witnessed and, you know, may have participated in a few times. And, uh, but for me, sorry, I'm going to move my phone here. For me, it, I didn't see it. I didn't see the the sort of the art and the culture of New York at that time and the, the sort of underbelly and the violence and, and all that. I didn't see those as these mutually exclusive you know, separate things. And I think they kind of informed each other to a degree, you know, certainly the rawness and the violence and the, you know, of New York and in in that kind of quasi dystopian era informed a lot of the art and a lot of the culture, you know, a lot of the visual art, a lot of the performance art, you know, later on, you get, you get groups like missing foundation, you know, Who, are a product of that dystopia, you know, Um, but but I always kind of saw a a big overlap between the 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 danger and the violence, and the 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 tension of of class disparity and and you know and all of that and just the tension that hung in the air of New York at that time. I don't know. I was kind of fed off that and and. And I always felt like that that fueled a lot of the music and the art.
0: Well, I'm glad you alliterated because that's what I was kind of getting at. And it feels like no matter who you speak to or what you read at, from that time, that same kind of theme pops up. So I'm glad that you, um, that resonated with you. Now, Absolutely. you mentioned Motorhead and something that I've always wondered because, you know, as you've seen once, like, you know, Underdog and later on with Into Another, there's always this. Argument from people who were not there to see that there was a moment where hardcore punk, as it was coming up, was hand in hand with a lot of these heavy metal bands. And I, as I thought, the, as I thought, the Paris Paris said that some of his influence, like in, in writing the Cro-Mag stuff, directly came from Lemmy's playing. And I've always seen similarities in the early New York hardcore sounds to stuff that was Motorhead. But I was wondering what you thought was some of the influences that are not a directly punk rock related that were coming into New York hardcore in like 81, 82, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no, deny- look, there, there was the, the obvious, you know, influences you can hear later on, like, <clears throat> you know, with AF in the, in the cause for alarm era and all of that stuff, you hear, you hear obvious, you know, metal riffs and things happening, but, but yeah, sure. Earlier on, I mean, if you listen to the way Earl plays drums in the bad brains and you listen to the way you know, Filthy Animal and Motorhead plays drums, you know, with that, I mean, you know, there's no denying that there are connections. And, you know, a lot of it, I mean, you talk about Lemmy, Lemmy, you know, the way he plays bass a lot of time with, you know, these eighth notes or 16th notes, you know, all downstrokes with a pick, you know, which is just like throbbing low end, you know, um, that was in a ton of hardcore. And I don't don't even know if it, it wasn't like conscious, plagiarism people were doing it's just you know there's there's so much you can do with a piece of wood and some metal string stretched across it and you know pickups and amps and you know so there are ways to con to convey and connote like aggression and you know darkness and uh, and uh, and a sinister vibe and you know so so you're gonna borrow from the. there's a common palette of of musical colors and textures between hardcore and metal because they're both sort of extremist genres in a way, right? They're, they're kind of carrying something to the extreme. What, you know, hardcore, or especially early hardcore, was vastly, vastly different, uh, obviously, even though it had things in common. But those things were just on a raw kind of id, aggression, energy level. In the in the kind of messaging framework and the whole sort of like you know thesis of the movement, you know, hardcore couldn't be more different from you know what a lot of the fan base that comprised the kind of metal fandom of the time were. You know, yeah. Um, In fact, the only thing they may have shared was a kind of uh, you know nihilism, maybe. You know, except. In hardcore, you had a lot of bands, especially the bands that came out of DC, who were the antithesis of of being nihilistic. And, and uh, but but yeah, I think musically, it's only natural that you know. I, I think you could do that with so many genres that are offshoots of rock and roll, right? You could you can find those things in common. But yes, I definitely hear. In early, you know, 1981, 82 hardcore, I definitely hear elements of Motorhead. I hear some elements of Black Sabbath, you know, and 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 other bands for sure.
0: It's interesting that you say Black Sabbath too, because so many more modern guests that I've had on this show have all cited Black Sabbath as like the turning point for them musically. And so I'm glad that you also see the common denominator. So you earlier on you said seeing bad brains to that first time was like an electrifying moment for you when you walked out of that show, how much, how much was your brain being like, this is it for me? Like, this is it.
1: Yeah. I remember feeling that I, I remember feeling like this, you know, this is kind of the pinnacle. Like this is, this is music right now. This is the, or at least this is underground music. This is music outside of the mainstream. There you know, to me, I, I immediately recognized like, that's, that's like the apex, you know, th- that's it. That's, um, you know, that represents hardcore, you know, that represents this, this thing happening after punk. Um, there were a lot of other great bands out there, other great artists, but I, I felt even seeing them for the first time then, that this was the pinnacle of, of this movement
0: so now now were you a person who was collecting records or anything like that at the time or you just like focused on what you're seeing live yeah i wasn't
1: as precious about it as everybody but yeah i remember i used to go to nine nine records and and every time like a new misfits single came out i'd buy it for whatever it was two dollars or a dollar or three dollars whatever they cost so i had all of that i had i had all those records i had you know, all those, I guess, first pressings of, of tons and tons of punk records. I, I had a, a, a pretty disastrous uh, thing happen when I was living in Los Angeles where I lost many thousands of records that I don't like to talk about. But basically, I, I, I was away for a long, long time. And when El Nino, one of the El Ninos that happened in the 90s, um, completely submerged my entire collection that was in my friend's basement in Hollywood Hills. Um, and, and destroyed pretty much everything and not just not just hardcore and punk records, but a lot of a lot of other rare shit but 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 no I was never I was never the person who just that was it was never like a monomania for me collecting. I just liked to have you know copies of everything I liked and, and it just so happened that a lot of stuff I picked up I picked it up at a time it was a first pressing. Um, There were things I sought out um, from a collecting point of view, but they weren't hardcore records, Um, you know, like Bowie, Diamond Dogs with the original artwork, you know, that was banned later, things like that. Um, You know, rare, just, just rare stuff like that. A lot of monophonic uh, Beatles and Stones and stuff like that.
0: I bring up records because a lot of the people from the Midwest and, and even in New York, you had mentioned Slade earlier and like English bands and I was wondering if how much how much English punk were you picking up at that time or how much of an influence, if any, was some huge. of the or so was it so it was it was on the radar and you're a cognizant? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I mean just huge. Like, yeah. I I in fact I love I to me the, those bands that kind of bridge like glam, those more kind of working class glam artists and and they're kind of a bridge to Oi. They're kind of a bridge to Absolutely. the country region, um, and that sound really resonated with me. And I also spent a lot of time in England as a kid. Um, you know, my, my dad's side of the family are English. lived there for a long time. Went to primary school there for a little while in in, uh, in England. But but I was always a musical uh, Anglophile. You know, I. You know, from from the Beatles and the Stones to Mark Boland and T Rex to you know all the kind of glamars worshipped Bowie from the time I was five or six years old, um, and then got super heavily into the Clash and Stiff Little Fingers and yeah, I mean, uh, it was yeah and, and i got into i got i got into all of it i mean you know there, there were a lot of those a lot of english punk to me was shit like you know there were some bands i didn't just fall in line and love everything that was english i was i never was a fan of like uk subs or you know or you know a lot of other bands that people were were gaga over i mean they were, whatever it was all right with me, with me but like there were english artists that i absolutely worshiped and um including in uh in punk and and in you know not just punk even even later i was i was still you know i was into like a lot of the club music being you know played at like the, the hacienda in, in the early 80s too you know so um yeah huge fan of many genres of english music
0: i didn't know you spent any time over in england i definitely didn't know that about your childhood and i think that might lend to why you have such a wide um, interest in music because I have friends in England who they have such a diverse idea of like the things that they grew up on. When were here. It was like, you got one, yeah you know, whatever your parents listened to. And so yeah. it makes total sense. So, yeah.
1: And the, which is weird because in England there, you know, I remember going, uh, I've made countless trips to the UK in my life. And, and I remember one when I was a senior in high school, uh, and just just went over with a friend and like just went around on like a brit rail pass but at that time in the you know in the very early 80s you kind of had to pick your underground scene and that was it like you could not stray from it you you know if you were into you know whatever it was you know it's like mods and rockers but if you were in, like you know at the, and at that time I was really into rockability psychability I, I remember going to like the Bat cave and seeing like the meteors and, and these bands and but it was like you were either psychabilly or you were rockabilly or, you know, you were like roots rockabilly or neo rockabilly or and, and no one strayed between these these uh, these tiny little factions. It was so crazy. It was like, why? But yeah, that was one thing that was very different from, you know, whereas in New York, you know, you, if, if you went to go see like Levi and the Rockats at the Peppermint Lounge, there were punks, there were skinheads, there were drag queens, there were you know long haired like metalheads. I mean, there was everybody, you know.
0: When you said that about there being a crowd of everybody, because I feel like that's something that would eventually change in hardcore over time. Where in the very beginning, there was such an amalgamation of so many different kinds of people, and I feel yeah. like something that you had just said about the micro genre, I feel like that became something that came back into vogue. Many years later, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, early on you were very polymath. You were into so many things. You're, especially when you're younger. For me, I came from metal. My mom let me go to metal shows at a very young age because she booked metal shows. So then, when you get that calendar in your hand or you go to South Street and get flyers, you're immediately immersed in going to see whatever the hell you can get your hands on. So I'm going to yeah. going to get uh, goth dance nights. I'm going to go see industrial shows. I'm going to see Proto punk band, ska shows, heavy metal, you know, everything just because you're allowed to and it's all exciting.
1: And yeah, and why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to expose yourself to as much as possible, as broad a range as possible? You know, life is short.
0: Yeah. So when you when you get home after the Bad Brains incident where you're just like electrified, what was your thought? I want to start a band, or would you just get did you go full all in with hardcore? Like what was the the moments that came after?
1: Well, Yeah. I mean, my, my thoughts were that ultimately I'd like to, I didn't like pursue it in earnest right away. I, I did go home and like, you know, take out my guitar immediately and start, I started just writing, you know, music differently. I, I I was always writing always. And, you know, there's a million songs that never like gelled and got recorded or performed. But so, so I kind of went at that time I was, I was already kind of transitioning from, the kind of, you know, cramp stuff I was playing. Because I was I was the guitarist on my band. I sang some of the stuff, but I was primarily the guitarist. And I was already transitioning from that into a more kind of fast, kind of post-punk uh, kind of thing. And, and after seeing The Bad Brains, you know, yeah, I was going home and writing lots of fast, crazy, kind of very obviously influenced by them riffs. Um, but... Yeah, I didn't I didn't start doing that with friends and even then it wasn't like performing or anything. I I had a good friend friend named Scott Cleaver who he who later became uh he later was in a band called Surgery who were not a hardcore band. They, and he was one of the with me one of the founding members of the Numb Skulls, which would eventually become True Blue which would become Underdog. But he and I used to long before we ever played out or anything and with a bunch of different people we wrote a million hardcore songs. I don't know I, I forgot half of them um but yeah so I, i started not long after seeing the bad brains in 81 started writing just endless kind of riffs and stuff on my guitar and and you know and some some words and melodies in my head but it didn't it didn't all really gel and start to where i started doing it with my friends in like little in rehearsal rooms until like 83 or so and then and then i think we made like a Cassette in 84 or something, you know, and, and then from there started playing shows.
0: Um, but yeah, from everything that I ask you about, it's always coming from books and set, or uh, interviews or YouTube videos. And so, from my understanding, around 1982 to 1983, the scene had started to be like more recognized and formalized, you know, chromags were starting to get bigger. Shows were getting really packed at places like the CBGBs. It wasn't just like 50 people at A7 anymore. So it seems like that would be a good time to kind of bring out a band like this. You know, it wasn't such a hodgepodge mix by that time. Would you say that's correct? Or, well, sort of.
1: I mean, 82, 83 is more AF, and then Chrome are kind of a little bit after that. Chrome AGs and Murphy's Law a little bit after that. And it's funny because one band that never gets talked about enough from that period, because that period is still very much yes. like the prime, it is Murphy's Law, even though I think they started around 84. Like, I can't, I can't possibly um, explain like how larger than life that band was. Like in, in 1984, you know, Murphy's Law were their stage presence and their energy and and what they did to a crowd was just, you know, just as 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 amazing and and visceral and you know um, like something you you couldn't find anywhere in the mainstream. Just as much as any other band in hardcore, you know they were, um, you know, Jimmy was you know to me he's among the greatest frontmen of all time, and you know not to take anything away from any of the bands now we're all we're all middle-aged men now but that band murphy's law back then in 1984 85 you know those early days of murphy's law was just you know pure magic they were just incredible and there was such such an amazing mix of humor but a real sinister mean darkness that was just so amazing you know just like just gave you goosebumps. You know, they, they were phenomenal.
0: Something Siv had said to me in a conversation was that Jimmy is the most unsung New York hardcore frontman, and possibly absolutely. one of the best front men ever in punk rock.
1: Yeah. It's, it's exactly what, uh, what I'm saying. Yep.
0: And so absolutely for me, I wonder if at that time, how much as you're seeing all this, you realize like, that you're standing in front of bands that would one day to go on to something like, you know, that giant stadium tour. Do you think when you were watching this, like, uh, you know, these bands will do all right and we'll never go further than just the L.E.S.
1: I never even really thought about it. I, I always thought about, I, I always thought about hardcore actually as, as something that was very deliberately kind of an, Kind of an insular scene. Not that it didn't welcome new people, but it was so it was so do it yourself, and it was so um, completely against the grain of the mainstream. Um, that that no, I I I I don't think I ever imagined that you know I would see hardcore bands playing in like arenas or anything. No, I never I never imagined that. I, I certainly never imagined seeing the misfits at Madison square garden. You know, I, I, I remember going to see the misfits playing like high school gyms and like, you know, upstate New York or New Jersey or wherever, <laughs> like, you know, uh, um, I mean, I saw them at like Gildersleeves in New York and stuff, but, but I never imagined. So yeah, I, I don't think I ever imagined any of the bands from that scene ascending to the heights that some of them did, um, you know, but I, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody.
0: No, not in any regard. I find it more interesting that something that really organically came from, like, in between the cracks in the sidewalk in New York City would become this, you know, multi-decade culture that spans through the entire world now.
1: You know, it's funny. You, you mentioned that. And, I, the, I mean, I, I probably sound like a broken record because I talk about this all the time. But, you know, coming coming from the, the cracks in the sidewalks in New York City, you know, there was a time... To me, the most tragic thing about the world becoming a global village and the and the and the you know the rise of the internet and social media and, and is that regional culture is essentially dead. You know, like the reason why the Stooges sound, you know, they sound like Detroit is 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 you know there are reasons for that. It's like regional culture and, and allowing these scenes to, to foment and grow, you know, um, is so important in any medium, not just in music. And, you know, the, 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 the dawn of the internet and just the, just the rise of like, you know, global chain stores and everything, and the, just the homogenization of the world really killed subculture in a way you can't you don't there there is no more regional subculture you know every every scene has always been derivative to a degree and has always like stood on the shoulders of whatever preceded it but now it's like you you know i don't even see how a an authentic regional organically born and grown subculture could even happen without just kind of without it being like pastiche or just just like looking up on Wikipedia what they're supposed to do or looking back at you know on, on the internet at like other bands and I, I, don't, I don't know it's just it, you know I'm just I, I sound like an old bitter guy because to a, a to a substantial degree I probably am but that to me is really tragic and, and it was just those words you said about about New York hardcore rising essentially out of the gutter. I mean, it really did. And it, and it sounds like it. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff doesn't really happen anymore, at least not in big American cities.
0: No, I feel like you and I have a lot in common with this. And we've spoken on this a couple of different ways with different guests on the show. In fact, for me, the hardest thing to grasp is that at the time when we were coming into music, everything was on hard copy. So every, every discovery in music was tactile and visual. And now it's a click of the button. And so for me, you know, I, I, I love when I, when you hear and talk about bands like the nihilistic and stuff like this, because this is stuff that's, good. I was a child, if not barely born when some of these bands were playing. And yet now I've been booking shows for almost 25 years. This same interaction that a young kid may have with an old hardcore band or a new hardcore band is a click of a button. So the authenticity and the organic nature of how these things come, these kids don't understand it because to them. It's, Oh, I saw this on YouTube or Oh, I saw this on Spotify. And it's, it's driven by an algorithm and not by the search of what you had said about the derivatives.
1: Exactly. And, and by the way, so, so not only is that algorithm dictating their taste to them or lack thereof, but because they, because be, not doing the legwork, I think really removes you from the the process of of experiencing these things at a rate at which you should. I remember when I was a kid, I would literally, I'd go to the library, and you know, I would I would I would see like I'd listen to a Bowie record. I'd see like Tony Visconti, you know, who's that? And I would just I'd, I'd go look through magazines and look at look through records to see anything else he produced. Go to the library and be like you know, are there any books here that mention Tony Visconti or what, you know, whatever. And I, and doing it with with punk and trying to connect all the dots. And I remember being fascinated that stiff little fingers were this this band from Ireland and who's this guy, Jake Burns. I want to learn everything about him. Like, let me go look through like zines and stuff and see if I can find any interviews. And and I just feel like doing that legwork and just like kind of letting your passion drive you to discover these things organically, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm glad that I kind of, that my tastes grew that way and I am amassed whatever knowledge I have that way, as opposed to just, you know, carrying around like the library of Congress on this, you know, yeah. and like, you know, just, just being able to click on anything and just have immediate access to just literal encyclopedic knowledge about
0: everything. And the irony is they know so little. And in fact, it really does diminish everything about the culture that was built because it seems like, well, it's just, you know, just another thing where it's like there's so much to something like a hand-drawn cover that'll go and be photocopied and put into a plastic sleeve or a record. And right. it's and and there's a beautiful weird now resurgence in the analog formats, and that'll always come in cycles, but what really is lost is the immersion in the culture because right next to whatever the top 40 hit is or whatever the new song is, is the new hardcore song. So it's seen on an even playing field. And for us, I always felt cause I came from heavy metal. My mom was into hair metal. Then I found metal. Then I found punk and all this mm-hmm. stuff. I found like I was in high school at the time when your, your, your last band into another was starting to be a thing. I thought I was on to some shit just listening to the death metal when all these kids were finding out about like crisscross and all the weird hip hop shit. And then when all the kids would start in a grunge, I was in the biohazard and sick of it all. So I always was in a secret club and the, the algorithmic uh, positioning of these bands next to each other and the click of the button puts all the clubs in the same line. So the kids don't feel any more excitement about listening to a hardcore punk record as they would whatever the next, whatever comes out on that Friday.
1: And also all those little intangible or actually literally tangible things you mentioned, just like, you know, the the do it yourself sleeve stuffed inside the the plastic, you know, protective uh, cover. It's like all those little details that go into a subculture, you know, um, there's no way to, to convey the, the real essence of, of that time anymore, you know, with everything just streaming and being digital, and and with such a cacophony of a million different genres, and like you said, like the top forty being right next to you know what is supposedly like uh, the underground and subculture. It's just, it's it's really tragic. It's and and, and I feel like music and movements, particularly subcultural movements lose a lot of their magic a lot of their mystique in this day and age you know um there's just there isn't that same mythical quality to some of the the characters or some of the, the music uh that there used to be it's it's kind of tragic
0: i i, I completely agree and i find i find myself waiting on the which side to stand on because for me I want to be someone who heralds not only the young bands that are coming up now, but make sure I'm talking to someone like you. And at the same time, hope that the younger bands who are doing this now understand that they came off the backs of the people like you and and what you saw. That's actually what the only reason why I did a podcast. I didn't want to do a podcast to ask somebody what the newest record was. It was actually to talk about our culture and to explain where a lot of this came from and what people did to make it what it is. And it, it gets it gets for me to see someone look at whether you're doing a show, whether you're putting on a record. There's almost like this lack of understanding. Like, dude, this is still a punk scene. And you see it in like uh in funny ways, you know, like someone'll treat a show that we're booking like like a ticket master, like, oh, you're supposed to have all this, you know, like it's very right. there's an expectation of hardcore punk to be on the same level at times without any understanding, like, hey man, this is still this is still a folk culture. This is still an underground culture. Yeah.
1: And by the way, let me be very clear. I, I absolutely, you know, encourage anyone, you know, anyone young to pick up a guitar or pick up a, a pen and paper and or or your you know your your iPad and your, your microphone and make music i i I don't you know i don't want to be that guy who just says oh you know it all happened and then it died and and, you know it's it was ours and it can't be yours i'm i'm not that guy but i am the guy who says like if you're gonna do it don't fucking be another band that sounds exactly like 10 other fucking bands Like, just, you know, it's like that song, Not Like You, which was one of the first underdog songs, and before it was an underdog song, it was a fucking numbskull song. It's like, you know, do you want every band to be the same? I mean, do you? It's like I can't tell you how many fucking Arco shows I've been to, not just recently, but, you know, in the last couple of decades, where it's like, I'll hear three bands in a row and be like, I I can't tell the fucking difference. You know, like, if you're going to do it, like, just and it, it doesn't even take anything it actually takes less effort than than just like following some template exactly and like going off the way you're supposed to go off and 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 like tune your guitar down the way you're supposed to tune your guitar and it actually takes less effort to just be genuine like all those bands we talked about murphy's law the Chromex, Gnostic front the nihilistics the mob i mean i go on and on and on and on and on they didn't fucking sound like anybody else they didn't You know, uh, that's the only thing I would say. And I would say it back then, too. It's just like if you're going to fucking do it, just just have a unique voice. And that doesn't take anything other than casting off your your urge to try and fit into something. If you just cast that off, you're going to, you know, just by nature taking its course, you're going to have a unique voice. And by voice, I mean artistic voice, not just a singing voice. You know, the way Vinnie Stigma's is like kind of out of tune guitar sounds. The way, you know, against Rogers vocals, against, you know, Kabul is based sort of like, you You can't help. If you're authentic like that, you can't help but carve a unique niche and have a unique artistic voice.
0: I love what you just said right here. And there's a couple of things you touched on that I think goes right into the next thing I want to talk about. First of all, I don't think that you were saying that, you know, um, Anything in like disparaging Or telling people not to do new bands In fact um, When you said it's all been done before Stephen Blush And American Hardcore Capped Hardcore at an era Before you started your underdog And yet right. and yet, I- Ironically Underdog comes out after as you said Being first the numbs calls It was you and Russ, Russ was in Murphy's Law You guys right. come out with one of the most unique But yet still absolutely New York hardcore seven inches mm-hmm. at a time after Stephen blush would have had hardcore being over already. So right off the bat, right off the bat, you're like, Hey, not only am I going to work hardcore is not dead yet. You took a, you took your exact advice you just gave and you put it into that underdog seven inch. And that's what I think one of the biggest things. And I, and I love that you just said it. It's why, because I was going to ask you why, but now you just answer the question is underdog came out amongst I've got to be probably dozens of clones at the time or, you know, a dozen clones of different bands. And you guys came out sounding so much different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think part of that is because, I mean, that, that seven inch came out in 85, I think. And, and those, that was kind of the distillation of riffs I had been writing for four years or something, you know? So, um, so I think it along the way, just like, you know, fucking around my guitar in my room it it just picked up a lot of just sort of influences along the way but 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 by not trying to you know emulate or imitate anyone else I think anyone who's making music you know is going to be authentic you know just uh just make the music that comes out of you and and just like anything else you know draft it and redraft it and make it better and you know before you immortalize it on tape but uh but yeah don't don't fucking just try and sound like somebody else
0: now for me i've always wondered what because there's obviously the era we we just spoke on you know the 80 to 82 then that vibe and obviously when underdog comes out chrome max is a thing there's all this stuff going on there's always people that blanket skating and hip-hop as influences in New York hardcore, but I didn't know if that was your perspective or is that just something that writers do to kind of like paint the parallel lines between the cultures together?
1: Um, Early on, skating was not a big thing in New York hardcore. In fact, I think what drew Russ and me together was so many shows I would go to, he'd be the only other guy I would see with a skateboard. Was Russ? That's that's like kind of how we first started talking. In fact, you know, I remember shows at at CB's and at, at Gildersleeves. I think maybe even that Misfit show at Gildersleeves. I remember seeing him there. I would see Russ skating outside, and no one else on a fucking skateboard. I know there were other people who skated in New York hardcore, but they were very, very rare, very few and far between. So it wasn't a huge thing in in New York hardcore. In fact, I remember being like completely starstruck when uh, the Numbskulls opened for the Faction and Government issue at CB's, and and I was like, like saying to people, like, do you realize who this guy Steve Cavalier was? Like, do do you, do people even know who this this is? And so many New Yorkers are like, nah, no, nah. you know. So um, it wasn't as big a thing. Um, Hip hop. You know, same thing. That was that, that was really later on. Um, I was super into hip hop uh, early on. I, I mean, you know, I used to go to the when I was in high school. I used to go to the Roxy on Friday nights, and, and you know, see like the Treacherous Three or the you know the you know Fab Five Freddy. And, and I remember like DJ Jazzy J used to was the house DJ at the Roxy, and I used to go to the Latin Quarter and I would go to to those shows. And I loved all that early hip-hop, but there there weren't a lot of hardcore kids into it. I mean, the ones who were who were most into it and the, the only other people I would see at the Roxy those nights, you know, and I'm sure there were other people who did, but, you know, obviously, like, uh, the Beasties and, like, uh, their friend Dave Skilkin, who was a friend of mine, too, who you know, passed away a long, long time ago, you know, like he and, he and Adam used to go to hip hop shows. I remember I'd see them sometimes out. They'd be, um, you know, be able to spot them easily in, among that crowd. But I I don't really remember skating or hip hop being huge influences to New York hardcore until later on, you know, that the whole, like, uh, you know, there there did arise later on a very big element of hip-hop and graffiti and all that other stuff working its way into New York hardcore. But I didn't really see that, you know, early in the early
0: 80s. So with Underdog, what would happen? You would go through to one of the, I think, is like the most interesting bass players, uh, Chuck, who lives near us. And I see all the time and Ar- arthur who's probably one of the most accomplished but i feel like underdog shows a level of musicianship that's not really seen at that time in hardcore because it was kind of like seen as more like three cards banging out get it done but you guys had some serious fucking players in that band um, yeah i mean we we're okay i i
1: definitely said i mean you mentioned paris i mean the music that, that like harley and paris wrote for the and their playing was was stellar. I mean, you know, and, and Mackie and, and it, there were drummers in Hardcore. Eddie in Hines, Edie e. Hines. I mean, like unbelievable fucking drummers, um, quite a few of them. So, um, yeah, I mean, Chuck is one of those, uh, you know, you put any instrument in, in front of Chuck Treece and he's you know, he's like a virtuoso. So he's, he's one of those guys. Arthur, br- brilliant guitar player. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we were, we we were all right, but I was definitely in awe of of, of quite a few musicians in, in the Americana scene. I mean, there there were people who who weren't great, but then then there were people like like Paris and Mackie and and Petey Hines and and you know and Harley and and uh, you know so. It, that's the thing about that genre, though, is it's it's pretty forgiving in that regard. Because some of the most memorable, you know, New York hardcore isn't necessarily, you know, performed and recorded by virtuosos, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen to Step Forward. You know, is a great example. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, I love that. No, I mean, that's a it's it's one of the things that I uh, you had actually touched on about clones and not be like everybody else, you would eventually be in youth of today. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a band that would end up being the mold from which so many bad carbon copies and copies of a copy of a copy would eventually come over the decades. But what was the, what was your motivation in joining? And then I guess like in general, not just so much, like so much the the person, but now looking at it, like it's, would you have ever thought playing like oh yeah we are going to end up making our own template that so many bands for decades later would follow um
1: i did so it's weird i I guess the, the the thing that drove me more more than anything else uh to play with with you today was was friendship really i remember uh purcell moved into my apartment in soho for a while we were roommates uh ray and i used to we're, we're just constant constantly hanging out we used to uh we were both very curious about spirituality and, and philosophy in fact i remember going with ray to his very first uh kind of krishna consciousness thing on on uh, i think it was at the greenwich avenue preaching center um and so i just had a lot in common with those guys the way i came across them i had seen them around i had seen I'd seen Ray's other band, uh, Violent Children and and like, you know, I knew those guys and they, I would see them. I knew they came in from the suburbs and stuff I'd see them at hardcore shows. But I remember um, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go out of town. I forget exactly where it was, but uh, to see, it was an agnostic front show and Youth of Today were opening. It turned out to be their very first show. And as soon as they started playing, I remember getting goosebumps because I thought it's so funny because this was like, I don't know, maybe 1985 or something. But I remember thinking like this, this, sound like this takes me back to 82, you know, like it was so long ago. Was, like now I blink my eyes and a decade goes by. But back then it was like to hear that sound at a time when AF were kind of sound like kind of metal, but to hear Youth of Today come out as the opening act. And it was more like seeing, you know, SSD or Minor or bands that I'd seen in like 82. I remember just getting goosebumps. And then from that moment on, like I basically just like accosted them right after that shows, you know, and like that night, like myself and Capo and Purcell, you know, just forged a friendship. And then it just grew from there. And so I think I kind of, welcomed the, like taking a break from being a front man in a band. And, and I also, things about Youth Today really spoke to me. Um, You know, I was, I was always kind of drawn to and attracted to straight edge even before that, but never wanting to call myself that just because my natural tendency to always want to be like on the fringe of everything, but Uh, I was always drawn to that. I think being the son of an alcoholic father, I never wanted to be that, you know? So, um, you know, even though when I was very young, I experimented with everything. I, when I was still a teenager kind of renounced it all. And, uh, so I was always, I was always drawn to, you know, teen idols and minor threat and SSD and all that stuff. Um, and that was part of the reason why, um, And it was just really refreshing to see Youth of Today, a band that was kind of picking up that baton again, that kind of straight edge baton, but also musically was kind of, they were kind of purists, like hardcore purists, you know? Um, And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, and, and it's so sad because a lot of bands that emulated Youth of Today actually behaved in a way that they thought Youth of Today were like, those guys, you know, Ray and Purcell were, first of all, had an incredible sense of humor about themselves. But also, um, you know, they, they were not these, like, uh, tunnel vision, puritanical, intolerant assholes. On the contrary, they loved, like, every single, you know, iteration of punk rock you can imagine, and lots of other forms of music, and were incredibly tolerant. And and incredibly good guys and and the whole you know as far as these clones appearing that happened that started happening really quickly like I remember going on tour with those guys like in that that summer of eighty seven tour you know and you'd play with bands who were just like you know all these dudes who just you know just like muscle bound dudes and the band would be called like bench press or something and like and they they were like this they became this caricature of what they thought you know, the way they interpreted Youth of Today. And Youth of Today was really just a band that was in a lot of ways paying homage to hardcore of 82 and 83 and kind kind of wanting to like bring it back to that. But these, what they spawned, a lot of what they spawned was was like kind of, whoa, you know, um, totally uh, off brand with the real Youth of Today.
0: Now, what was the difference for you on stage as a front man at that time with underdog verse being an instrumentalist on stage. Cause I always see videos and it's either it's feast or famine. It's either total fucking chaos and everyone's getting smashed around <laughs> or, you yeah. know, like do you think that there was a comfort in playing behind a guitar versus having to hold the mic and be like the master of ceremonies between sets for you.
1: No, what I, what I appreciated about it. The mo- usually if I have a mic in my hand, I kind of go into a- a different kind of dimension. So it's it's more, I experience it in a, in a way where I'm not really picking up all the fine detail that I do when I'm playing guitar. So you, you feed off the energy in a different way. Like if I'm singing, I kind of feel like I I kind of get to this weird metaphysical state where I don't know where I end and like the room and the people begin. And it's, it's, it's very kind of trippy um but it's also like this this hyper kind of tuned in thing um whereas playing a guitar and kind of being the the backdrop like the canvas for like the front man to to paint on and watch all that is a totally different experience it's just as in in ways it's just as rewarding it's not it's not rewarding the ways that i'm like here are these words i wrote and like um you know uh um but it is you know it's 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 my friends and i are on stage and and i'm you know i'm making these sounds and purcell's making these sounds and this this room is just exploding and you know but i remember you know for me when i'm playing guitar on stage um and side note, I did that once for Warzone as well too. I played guitar for one Warzone show. That's, but, so, um,
0: that's so fucking
1: cool. <laughs> playing guitar on stage,
2: um,
1: I, I become like like a almost like a voyeur, just like watching every like I'm able to see every corner of the room and just like you know watch what my front man is doing and and but also being part of it all and and, and occasionally you know getting myself into the crowd and back out of the crowd. But it is a very, very different
0: experience for sure. And so you said something about 1987 on tour. I have to wonder how that feels for you and what, like, what it was like to be on tour in, because obviously in modern time when touring it's gotten so fucking easy. What was a hardcore punk tour like in 1987 going across the country? uh
1: again really fucking different from what it is now i mean you know i think we all take it for granted that uh you you could be in bumblefuck idaho and get organic soy milk at the supermarket (laughs) you know like what we would you know i remember stocking up in new york on like things we all did on everything from like you know almonds and avocados to like Soy milk and, and, you know, like baked tempeh and tofu products and things we knew we weren't going to get, unless, you know, except for these few little oases in the country like Chicago and San Francisco, (laughs) Los Angeles. But, uh, yeah, and it was, it was different. It was, it was, you know, being in a van that would sometimes break down and you'd have to go find like a part for it and, um, you know, rolling into all these different, states and cities where sometimes you were treated like a fucking you know extraterrestrial um i remember once in youth today we got we got shaken down by texas state troopers you know we're a van full of like crazy new yorkers with shaved heads you know it's just um it was you know it was it was an adventure an absolute adventure touring at that time it was it was incredible um you know i wouldn't uh, trade anything for those experiences, but it was it was something you could never replicate today. It's just such a different fucking world now.
0: Was that was that lineup? You, Drew, Craig, Ray, and Porcel. Or what was that tour lineup? Yeah,
1: yeah, that was. And then later on, lineup.
0: that's such a crazy that, tour, like a group of. Yeah, friends, that was man. that
1: national. That was that national tour lineup, and and uh, but there were also lots of like weekends uh, and whatever. No, that I think that. Oh my god i can't no sorry drew played on the album we played on breakdown the walls together that tour uh was mike on drums and so and then there were other shows separate of that tour. so it was, it was me mike craig ray and purcell That's a sick line um, the breakdown the walls line was, was with drew but the breakdown the walls tour lineup was with mike Um, but there were lots of other shows separate of that tour that I played with, with different lineups, including with, with, with Walter, um, you know, so there were, there were different lineups that happened. There was even one show where I ended up playing bass, at least one show, one youth of today show where I ended up playing uh, bass. So there were, yeah, there were, there were, there were quite a few, but that, that tour, that U S tour lineup, uh, Mike played drums. So it was like the breakdown the walls tour, but, with Mike on drums instead of Drew.
0: Now, I wonder if I know you said bench press and like the uh, the clones at the time of the tour because that record come out and Wishing Well was pushing it. Was there also? I mean, you had to uh, when you went to California play with like uniform choices, and yeah. like when you were touring, you were were you, was was you to today playing with the bands that were known in their cities, or was it just kind of like you today in the opener? It's like whether some standout bands in small towns. That we're not talking about now um
1: it was all it was it was different everywhere it was it probably more often than not it was youth of today and like the local kind of yeah. straight edge band but there were lots of other things yeah that we we played in like a a garage with uniform choice it was sick somewhere in orange county and but we also played a huge show at fenders you know packed room with like you know that got super violent and uh um yeah, that that show that show was crazy because i remember there was some group of skinheads there like these like they were like see kylan and stuff and i i ended up i think during the youth today set, i i walked across a crowd it was either during the set or before or after but I, I ended up just just uh you know beating the shit out of one of the skinheads and then when we got off stage someone came up to me and said uh I forget what the crew was called. I don't know if it was the Fight for Freedom Skinheads or one of those groups, but they basically were like, they're waiting for you outside and they're going to kill you to me. So I was fucking nuts then. Nobody would go, nobody from Youth Day would go outside to like get the van and bring it around. I was like, fuck it, I'll go. And I uh, I had become friendly with this guy. We used to call Tiny, this huge, huge guy that used to hang out with Suicidal and, and, and that whole like Venice crew. And I was walking outside, and I thought I was alone. And all of a sudden, I'm being followed by like two, then four, then like ten skinheads. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it's about to get real. I hope I get to the van, time to grab a crowbar or something. And all of a sudden, I hear Yo Richie, um, "You okay?" And I turn around, and it's Tiny, this that like six foot eight dude for, who hung out with suicidal. And uh, he he then starts coming towards me with like twelve cholo's with him, and I was like, Phew! and and it quickly diffused the situation and the, the skinheads disappeared. But um that was the Fender show. But the, the, I think the Fender show was the biggest crowd we played to on that tour. So I think that room it was like the size of the line it probably had like Holy three thousand people.
0: Yeah. I guess that wasn't something that I was gonna ask you about. Culturally I know you probably played shows on the East Coast before you went out with the the Break Down the Walls tour, but it had to be interesting to see some of these scenes and how far different they were than what you were used to back on the East coast.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it you would, you would hear about. So you'd kind of know what to expect. I mean, not everywhere, but for instance, on the West coast, cause like, you know, we had friends on the West coast that we would talk to, whether it was people from, from zines that, that we knew, you know, the guys from maximum rock and roll or like Ryan Hoffman, who we knew who, who lived in Upland and you know, gave us like the whole primer on like the, the whole like Southern California scene and all the different gangs and all the you know this and that. So we kind of knew what to expect. We heard all the like folklore, but it was pretty cool to like, you'd hear about some of these people and then you'd meet them. Like I remember hearing about like Dan O'Mahony and like Carrie Nation and he, you know, he was the most, the most straight edge guy you will ever meet and all this stuff. And, and, and he and I later, we, we became great friends when I was in Youth of Today. And these, you know, so you'd hear about these local legends and all these cities, and then you'd meet them. And uh, that was was actually really, really a cool thing, you know, um, because, again, the, you know, people not being able to do like what we're doing right now, sharing a screen, you know, it was kind of, it was more of a mystique and, and, you know, more of a kind of myth that, that would precede these people. And then you'd finally meet them. And that was always, I thought, kind of amazing. But yeah, the, the scenes themselves had each one had a unique kind of just ethos, like a like a palpable feeling that was completely unique, you know, and didn't feel like New York hardcore, um, which is also an amazing thing. I, I think something that I'm not so sure still exists today. That that just that intangible, inarticulable vibe.
0: Now, obviously it's got to be in the van and just in general, in the band with people like Ray and Purcell, they become something, whether it's like demigods or like a different kind of like level people, the way they were perceiving them and the way that people were treating them. And I've always wondered if, because you've been such a Frank person and not hardcore, you know, follower that one of the reasons why you decided to focus more on underdog was just because the cult of Ray and Purcell got so big after break down the walls or was it just your interest in wanting to just do your own thing?
1: Yeah, it, it was, it was literally, I, I just felt like it was time to just put a microphone on my hand again. Okay. I, and I, um, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I was then and remain, um, you know, uh, not just um, a friend, but, it, but, you know, I'm a fan. I love, I love you. I love, you know, to me, like expectations is up there with any, any hardcore song ever written, you know? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a friend, lifetime friend and fan. Uh, but, but no, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with that. In fact, I wasn't even, I wasn't even really aware of it at the time until I got some distance, you know, um, you know, how kind of, um, Revered, how revered they were, and how 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 large their like personas had become um, to like lo- the hardcore world, which is great. Um, no, I just I always felt like I, I just had something to say lyrically. Um, you know, I, I mean I did I got to write a, cu- a couple of riffs with of today, which was cool. You know, on Break Down the Walls, I got to write a couple of parts musically, but I I missed writing and and lyrics and screaming them into a microphone. I just felt the need to just get back to doing that. That's all it was.
0: So when you left you today and picked up underdog, how long and what was the situations where you would eventually get picked up with Caroline and you would get working on vanishing point.
1: It, it wasn't long at all. In fact, almost immediately um, upon kind of rejoining underdog, and that was another thing, too, that felt weird for me was just having, like, seeing someone else sing my lyrics. You know, I, I love Carl, and rest his soul, love him. He was a great front man. And yeah, awesome. To me, it just felt, it felt so weird, because lyrics, to me, were always just such a personal thing. Um, and, and so that just, it just felt off to me. It felt really weird to, to see anyone else kind of, like, just... To, to hear my words coming out of anyone else's mouth. Um, although he was absolutely phenomenal at it. Um, so there was the desire to do that. And, and shortly after I rejoined um, a woman named uh, Janet Billig, who at the time was with Caroline. She later went on to get in uh, to become a music manager, was managing I, I, like uh Kurt at one time and but she she was uh she actually at a show just said hey um i'm with this label caroline and you know um you know can, are you writing new stuff and and we actually you know i made the this demo with new, the new songs like uh um over the edge and uh you know and and, and a few of those and uh and they dug it and I went to see like the head of the label. And so it was really almost um, immediately after, I don't know how long it took for us to finally get our shit together and just go record the songs. Um, Cause I, I think that didn't, I, I think we didn't record until 88 and then it got released in 89, maybe 88 or 89. So it took, it took, probably a lot of months to finally get our shit together and, and get it out. But it was almost immediately upon rejoining underdog that I started talking to Caroline.
0: I feel like 88 was a special time just in hardcore punk. And as you said, with the the way the era has changed. And I know that for you guys, you go on this tour with vanishing point. And I found it interesting. You kind of, you had your tour experience with break down the walls. You came back, you put your heart and soul into vanishing point. And you go on this tour with a record supporter with with Caroline. And then I'll let you kind of pick it up. But my perception was always you did what you did with underdog and your brain was like ignited to do something completely separate and different.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what had happened by the time we, we went and did like a, we we did lots of sporadic outings and weekends and mini tours and stuff. But by the time we went on this, this, you know, longer, like contiguous tour for, for the vanishing point. um, It was kind of like, you know, what I mentioned that for me, the, the kind of crescendo, the curtain call for New York hardcore was the, the riots in 88. And so we're doing this kind of after that in the like epilogue for me, not, not again, not being like the bitter old guy. It, hardcore never died, it carried on. For me, that represented like, you know, just kind of a shift. And, you know, by the time we, we were on that tour and by the time we were on the West Coast, um, I was really feeling um, just this burning desire to do something musically and, you know, lyrically, poetically, that was completely unfettered by unconstrained by genre or giving a fuck what anybody thought about me or what I was saying. Um, and it, it just it got to the point where it was, it was almost like an excruciating pain, and I just, uh, yeah, I just kind of threw threw in the the towel, hung up the the underdog uh, boots at, at you know some point um, in '89, and I think it was I think I made that decision when we for myself when when we were on the West Coast on the during that uh, Vanishing Point tour.
0: For me, I've always looked at things. I, I have a big love of actual world history and American history, and there's just certain turning points. And you are a figure that I look to all the time when I think about the shift in hardcore and, and what you said, you're building up this this case for me because I've always said at a certain point, hardcore music became so dogmatic and stuck in a genre that anyone who played it for more than a couple of years loses their fucking mind. So it was inevitable that someone was going to go out and go, I got to break this mold and do what I got to fucking do.
1: Yeah. I, I think that probably happens with most genres, right? You know, it's, it's uh, once it becomes so, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, I always felt the need to, to just keep, I don't know, keep kind of casting off whatever I whatever felt constraining to me and doing something new but I you know I remember like hating some bands that would do the very same thing like when 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 bands are not even not hating them but even even the slightest you know I, I I remember even like the first time I heard Sandinista which I I subsequently grew to love but I was like this isn't the fucking Clash. what what the fuck are they doing and, and like or when even when the Ramones did uh, you know end of the century I was like, yeah you know, with this Phil Specter production and everything I was like what's going on? no 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 this needs to you know this needs to sound like Road to ruin or rocket to Russia or leave home. but um, so I, I actually really value I, I think there is something amazing about the bands that don't stray from you know that, space that they occupy particularly bands who are their own genre in 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 essence like the ramones even though they're a punk band they're there's something so much you know just so beyond that there um but but for me i i just i couldn't stagnate for very long before i really got this burning desire to just do something something else something different but you're right there there it had gotten to a point where hardcore a lot of hardcore was becoming very dogmatic and and was crying out for you know another thing to come along did you it's funny too because the the a lot of the post hardcore bands if you want to call them that you know but a lot of bands like like you know whether it's quicksand or into another or or or, you know burn all of those bands were so distinct. Yes. Not one of them sounded like yes. another, which, which made me really happy, actually.
0: I want, I want you specifically because, before, obviously I'm going to eventually talk to Wally and other guys, but you specifically because you had, you know, so much time in hardcore at this point. Did you have to have the conversation with Drew? We're like, hey, listen, we're going to write this music and go off the road. Or was he already like, we need to do something more? Like, how did I know? I know it sounds crazy to think about, and and I'd like to understand like the formula where you wrote the the beginnings of the into another music. But was it, hey, let's just jam and see what comes out, or did you have an idea where you wanted to take things beyond?
1: We, we absolutely were. We were talking on the phone all the time. He he was he was you know even though he's 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 younger than I, he was feeling kind of the same way uh, with bold. You know, he was kind of going through the same thing at the same time while he was in bold and I was in underdog. And we 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 talked constantly, like almost every day. We would talk on the phone about music. And we, we would talk about everything from music that we loved, like bands that we both happened to love, you know, from from the past, to just this desire to just get together and just again with no template and no plan as to what we would create so there was that degree of like let's just see what happens um but it but there was definitely a mission to do something with no preconceptions at all no template at all no uh trying to fit into a scene or a genre on any level
0: now were you speaking to you because you had mentioned burn and you had mentioned uh quicksand were you aware that other peers of yours were also thinking about on that path or were you just singularly set on what you were doing and you weren't aware of what other people were trying to do musically?
1: I, I didn't know specifically what other people were trying to do until I would hear little bits of it. And, uh, you know, either, and I, you know, like for instance, I knew, I knew that Ray and Purcell wanted to experiment and do different kinds of music and they did. and they, 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 they both. Did. Um, so I, I think, I think pretty much everyone in my generation was kind of feeling that, you know, and it's and again, that has happened in it happened in in just good old rock and roll, right? I mean, it happened in the 60s so the Beatles in their studio years or like the Stones when they started like picking up slide guitars and were influenced by American country music or, or you know, um, I think, you know, artists go through periods um, but for me, it was necessary to like start something completely fresh, and 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 Drew was saying exactly the same thing. So we were just really uh, aligned that way. I, I did hear rumblings about, you know, my my uh, peers in other bands wanting to also do something new, and it wasn't long before I I heard what they were all up to. And again, it made me really happy to hear that everything was just very distinct and following that same kind of uh, mission to, to just be completely free creatively.
0: I actually think that you just did exactly what I was going to ask you about. It's fucking great. I, I watched a lot of documentaries on just rock bands and stuff like that. And it seems like the natural progression of a, whether it's a creator or a songwriter is to, you know, Not whether it's craft or just master what they're up to And then want to go further And I've seen this, like you said, with the Beatles You see it in all these different bands that have long careers So it's natural that the people who were writing The GB records, the Use of Today records Would creatively come to the point where they wanted to go further And it seems so organic that it was just a natural progression Of just trying to push yourselves as musicians
1: yeah and again I think that it's not only true I think in any musical genre or any artistic medium it's just true in in general for human beings that you know are are driven to create anything right it's you you know nobody wants to stagnate you you want to challenge yourself right you know um you know again unless you're happy just emulating somebody else and going out and doing that that's that's cool. But I think truly creative people continually challenge themselves and make themselves, you know, uncomfortable purposefully um, to, you know, to, to see what they can create um, as opposed to getting, getting as opposed to plateauing, getting stuck in a rut or, you know, getting stuck in a, in a pattern of, of musical dogma.
0: For me, one of the weirdest things that it came way after this whole period we're talking about would be picking up a magazine in the early 2000s and seeing post-hardcore slapped by some culture vulture on some bullshit mall metal crap that they were trying to align with an underground that wasn't a part of the band. And it's something that, for me, I was, when you were writing this, I was 10 years old, but. By the time it, um, I first seen it Into Another and I was in high school, I was blown away that hardcore music could be both so aggressive and violent, but also have the tones and have all this other, um, not as emotion, but sound to it. And mm-hmm. it was that time period where, you know, I, where you could see Into Another, I started to see Quicksand. And when someone's like, oh, well, they're not so much hardcore as post-hardcore. And I couldn't understand it. So I was, I was really the zines at the time. And I and I picked up on the Oh, because all these guys were in the, you know, the creme de la creme of the New York hardcore. And it's all I know it's just a stupid thing to diatribe on here. But to, to see it be just like plastered on some band that has nothing to do with the culture at all, just always has aggravated me. <laughs> it's like a,
2: yeah, you couldn't yeah. come up
0: with a better fucking term, you fucking lazy motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. like you fuck it and, and 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 it's it's stayed for so long that you see these bands and i'm and so every once in a while i see someone say oh we're like i get an email oh they're more post hardcore and i'll go this doesn't sound like into another and that's usually the end of like if it's a booking agent oh they're more of a post hardcore so right. like, this doesn't sound like ignaris
1: <laughs> yeah that's funny uh, it's yeah i mean it, it is it is a silly name for a genre that really didn't have uh an identifiable sound as a genre right it was just that these guys who were in these bands that comprised this scene went on and each did like a unique thing afterward and we need to lump it together and, and put some moniker on it. So uh, here you go.
0: I wonder if it was a zine person who wrote that first. I don't think it'd be any of you guys deciding to call yourselves that.
2: No. Yeah. No it, no.
0: I, it had to be some journalist, and that's always always thought. It had to be some fucking like, journalist that needed to describe you guys something because what came out is absolutely just different. And yet later mirrored by some of the, what would become like top 40 bands in some regard, not completely, but, right. and I wonder if, I always wondered if you guys were just because of the time that the bands that would later, whether it be like a Nirvana or what all the other shit that would come out, it was just that culture, just the way hardcore came out in the eighties and whether it was New York, Detroit, LA, you know, like, you guys are all coming towards the thing. And what was cool was I could wear it an into another shirt at a high school and no one knew what the fuck it was. So I still felt special, even though some kid who was probably rocking like Soundgarden probably would have fucking loved it.
1: Right, right. You know? So- yeah, no, I, I was always the same way. I always liked the, you know, the things I loved. I, I, I loved them even more when they were more sort of underground. And and was I, I always had kind of contempt for, I don't know, like people for, for people as you d- describe as culture vultures, like latching onto something that's authentic and cool and just kind of diluting it and taking the magic out
0: of it. Yeah. Well, for me, I, I was always wondering what your thought process was as to not, not just the writing and creation, but the direction like if you were if you were setting out with drew to say hey we're going to do a band and we're going to get rid of the genre trappings and the you know this one and a half to two minute song idea and if you had an idea besides we want to play or did you have an idea like we're going to try to play to this crowd like what was the idea beyond just writing like a sword shows and etc cetera, etc cetera?
1: Yeah. Th- there was i mean it was really a a, a broad mix of 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 Motives that we had um th- there was never like playing to the crowd because we honestly didn't know we were like we, we could we could make this music and people would just like throw shit at us and and we we did i think we both had it in mind to you know not consciously but we knew people were either going to hate us or love us in fact we would we would crack up and say things like you know he would be like you know i i would i would make jokes about hitting some high like rob halford note and like holding it and like hardcore kids just like sticking their fingers in their ears you know things like that so we would we used to just crack ourselves up about stuff like that you know we we were both huge fans of uh, drew is like me like just the broadest range of music you can imagine from you know from like Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen to you know to to Sabbath and like you, you know doom metal and but we we loved Queen and Bowie and T-Rex and and, and the Stooges and punk and hardcore and we just loved a lot of the same stuff and and we would sometimes when we were just like first forming these songs we would we would you know he'd be like oh I'm gonna do that like Simon Phillips part and you know sing that like that like Aussie thing, you know? And so we, we were definitely conscious that we were drawing on stuff that wasn't punk or hardcore that in fact was like seminal, like rock music. But, um, but again, th- there was no conscious like uh, emulation going on. It was more like some referential stuff. A- and we, we definitely had a bit of a sense of humor about what we were creating and how it would be
0: received. Something that I picked up um reading was that you guys would play your first show with white zombie which is like a band that people would be oh my god but at the time they were virtually unknown but it was at the pyramid club which is like one of like the LES old school clubs right so was it was it something where you're like hey we didn't want to try it out at cbgb's we wanted to do something different or was it a time when cb's was not so much having shows what was the what was leading up to the first actual into to another show. No,
1: it, it, it wasn't avoiding CBs, but we, we did, we did, you know, deliberately start out playing shows that weren't where we weren't on hardcore bills, even though we ended up being added to a bunch of hardcore bills. It was like, you know, I was always kind of ambivalent about that because on the one hand we, we drew and I, we were so grateful that a lot of these people, you know, we alienated some people, but a lot of these people, Came along with us and and loved us despite us not being a hardcore band and so we we you know and we both Drew and i obviously had this love and loyalty for hardcore and the hardcore scene so that was cool but sometimes we would like lament the fact that like after a while we were only on bills with hardcore bands in in the states at least we would go to europe and play with like neurosis and, and like all these different bands and that was cool but in the states we almost invariably got put on bills with hardcore bands um but the 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 white zombie thing that was um, that kind of happened organically i was i was on the lower east side and um i guess like some other musicians that i had been running into knew that i was doing this new thing and i think uh, Shauna from white zombie was like, Hey, I hear you have a new band. You guys should do a show with us or whatever. And that, and it started that way. And then we just put that bill together with the white zombie. And, and that show blew my mind because, you know, that was one of those things where we didn't, we had no idea what to expect right before we got on stage, we, we had like, as an intro, we played uh, in the lap of the gods revisited by queen as a fucking <laughs> intro, you know? And we got up and started playing, and the place went fucking insane, like completely insane, like wall-to-wall. Wall. And, I mean, we, we just could not believe it. Just couldn't believe it.
0: For me, hardcore was that – that was something I would find my first hardcore show would be sick of it all, Biohazard, sheer Terror a couple of years later. But what I found about that time frame was that at any given time, you could see into another with any variation of bands and it was right before yeah. Ignorance would come out, but there were so many different bills that you guys were on, whether it was hardcore, and there was a ton of bands. And I've always wondered, because obviously that came a little later, were, was there support or competition amongst the, the the bands that you had mentioned in general to not play with each other as much, like the Quicksands and the Burns and all these, like, eventually post-hardcore kind of sounds? Were you guys all trying to carve your own niche, or were you guys sometimes getting stuck on the same bill – because promoters didn't know how to lock you up. Like how did that work with amongst the bands like that?
1: I, I mean, I can only speak personally. I never felt, uh, it never felt competitive to me at all. In fact, you know, I welcomed whatever opportunities we had to share bills with those guys, you know, because of that, for me, I had an emotional connection to guys who had sort of been on that same journey and had that same desire to like you know carve a new niche so yeah it it didn't feel that way for me i mean um i i you know i never tried to get caught up in that stuff and and maybe maybe to my detriment you know it's like i'm you know i am not a good self-promoter and i'm not you know i have like a little private presence on like instagram i'm not on facebook i'm not a so I've, I've never been of that mindset. I've, for me, making music and writing lyrics and singing them um, was always on just such a different plane beyond, uh, you know, did did I want to attain success and, and, and have my job be doing that forever and nothing else. And, and, you know, being able to uh, yeah. I mean, of course I wanted those things, but, you know, did I want to like crawl over my friends or do or do whatever it took to attain as much, you know, get as much attention as I could, and attain as much notoriety as I could? No, I never felt compelled to do that.
0: I've. It's always been cool to see that you because you had Breakdown down the walls, which is out on Witching Well when you were when you were on it. You would later mm-hmm. get pulled into the Rev world when Jordan would release your stuff.
1: Yeah, but I I was actually. Involved in the Rev world very very early on, in fact, I like hand drew like titles on the Warzone seven and like I was friends with Jordan and and, and Capo, uh, you know, at, at the birth of Revelation Records. They, so it was inevitable
0: you'd have a release on it, right?
1: They were dear friends, yeah. And in, in fact, I remember with, with Underdog, um, you know, stupidly Russ and I both were like let's not be on Rev because everybody else wants to be on Rev. So let's not do that. And like Billy Rubin from new beginning was like, you want to be on my label? And we were like, okay. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, again, maybe, maybe, maybe to our detriment, who knows. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I was around uh, when, when Rev was born and, and, uh, you know, Jordan Cooper and, and Ray Capo obviously were very dear friends at, at the beginning then and and still now.
0: Do you feel like there was a moment where you were ever concerned because you were sometimes a, you know, a square block looking for a round hole and it was hard for publicists and people to bill you, or did you just stay on the path of, I just want to do my own thing and eventually it'll happen.
1: Oh no, I definitely felt stifled by that, uh, within to another because, um, you know to some degree because it was frustrating to me and, and it was look it was a, it was a self-created problem i created this problem for myself but i guess the all the machinery you know from from the journalists to you know to the the periodicals that they write for to record labels and guys who are programmers at radio stations and whatever all the the machinery needs to they have to categorize things, right? It's just, they have to, they have to be able to file it away under something. Um, You know, and I, you know, I don't know if it was the self-saboteur me or whatever, but I I always resisted that stuff, right? I always, always resisted categorization, always, you know, resisted uh, being labeled. Um, And then I would complain about it, you know, but it was a self-created problem. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it seems like I think a lot of this comes down to timing, because there was so much of a like a, like a wellspring of just activity as far as like majors trying to get into undergrounds, and like I, I mentioned with the grunge sound and with the punk sound, and at some point you guys were approached by Hollywood Records with like a million dollar deal to be like, hey, we want you guys, right?
1: Yeah, and that that, that I mean, and that only became like a big deal because there was you know because a lot of these people are like lemmings if one person says it's cool and 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 actually the first person who approached us was was dave walter who wasn't with hollywood at the time um who was he was like an emo kid you know he was into like righteous spring and embrace and stuff and stuff that i also loved um but he kind of the way things played out it was like Hollywood Records was kind of like winning this this war of trying to lure us in among the like three labels that were trying to do so. And and we basically said we want to bring Dave Walter along with us. And and so that and that's how it came to be. And we we you know, he was great. We couldn't have chosen uh, you know, I mean the, the, that label turned out to be disastrous for us in so many ways. Um I mean, I can't even recount it now. But um but <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I think the by the time people the, the the industry was ready to to sign us up, you know, the, there there was enough variance in the in the the world of kind of whatever they called it alt rock, you know, everything from post hardcore, the much credited term to to alt
0: rock. I've seen you listed as college boy. radio.
1: Yeah, college Yeah, it, it, um, there was, a, you know, they they could finally, you know, sign these bands and hope somebody would like get a great radio hit out for them or something. You know, so I mean, I guess that's what drew them to, to all of us, to us, to Quicksand, to to all these. Uh, we you know we basically signed with them, and it, it ended up being the death of the band.
0: In, in I actually school. read you say that about in another interview someone asked you and you said it was like an early zine and you're like signing to them actually ended up being the worst thing for us even though it was supposed to be like the burgeoning of like a real career yeah
1: yeah for sure and 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 by that I don't mean signing to a major label was so I mean very specifically that label and the, and the people who were there now who, who were there then who are not there now. um you yeah. know I mean, just to give you a tiny sample of, of why that was a bad decision. We we went on a tour with White Zombie in the room. Yes, so you're playing arenas. I seen you. Our technically our our album was out, but it wasn't in any source. It did not it wasn't being distributed because they were between distributors, literally. They went they were going from like being distributed by Polygram to Sony or something, and there was a pause between that and and some kind of legal issues going on during which we went on a tour where we were supposed to have a release that was available to people to buy and it wasn't then we went to Europe and our cd was in stores but the actual music encoded on them was like a trance band from Europe that wasn't us oh my god it was the right jewel box and the right screened art on the disc and the right insert but it wasn't the music wasn't us it was the wrong fucking music on those discs like that's like the tip of the iceberg of the shit show that was our major label experience like tiniest tip of the iceberg so yeah <laughs> that's that's for another time but um but yeah, I think that that there was a bit of a feeding frenzy for these these bands um, in the in the early and mid '90s. Yeah, it was like after I guess after grunge had been around for a few years, they wanted, or a couple of years, they you know everyone wanted to catch the next wave of whatever that was. Um, you know, and we got swept up in in, in that kind of feeding frenzy. Um, but yeah, it did it did not. Did not go well. Um, although I, I will say, though, that those those years um, from the time Seamless, you know, ninety five, pretty much until we broke up in ninety seven, I mean, some of the most you know euphoric uh, shows, you know, most incredible experiences on, on stage we ever had were in those years, and maybe because we were just just gelling more and more as, as, as a band and as a unit and just kind of just not giving a fuck about the, the bad stuff that was happening on the label side.
0: Something I'd spoken in another episode where we were talking about hardcore always having a wealth of cultural value. And we talked about it with like bands like Bad Brains and Jimmy Murphy's Law, Chromex and Gnostic Front versus our, our lack-defined giant commercial set success And it it sounds time and time again that it's stuff like this. One of our bands would come up, get into this major and, and something goes wrong. And I will, I've always wanted to ask you specifically where and why do you think that hardcore bands have not managed to have the leap to giant commercial success versus like a grunge or something else? Like what do you think the failing is that a band like that as a, as a genre, as a whole, why we, don't have these bands to, to bring up to the next level, so to speak.
1: I mean, it, it would really be impossible to identify exactly what it is. I mean, you know, the one thing is if, if you look at, if you look at a lot of bands that, you know, were described as underground or alternative in some way, in, in you know, from like 92 and through the nineties, who, 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 Got really big, you know. Whether it's Nirvana or Soundgarden or Rage Against the Machine or whoever it was, the, the thing that they all had in common, if you if you ignore this whole like portrayal of themselves as being underground, even though they were all on major labels and all like paid taxes and stuff, you know, weren't necessarily anarchists or anti, you know, corporate rock. <laughs> they were part of. They were signed to big corporations. Whatever the the thing they had in co- in common was. They they wrote hooky infectious hit songs that were short enough to have heavy rotation on radio and they and they had just the right timing and they touched on just the right, you know, nerves in the collective psyche of like young people who were consuming this music and 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 even at the time you could hear any one of those songs. You could, you know, you'd have to be an idiot to the first time you heard smells like teen spirit whatever you thought of it and most people thought it was awesome i thought like the very first time someone played that for me like on a cassette before it came out i was like this is going to be fucking huge like i this doesn't you know this is undeniable like this is just it's going to be huge it's just it's going to be in my head all fucking day and it's 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 going to be huge it's just like the first time i heard a, a lot of this shit. so um I, I just didn't. I, I can't remember a New York hardcore band, or even the dreaded post-hardcore. Any of the bands that arose from the ashes of of, of that generation of New York hardcore, um, even though they, uh, so, you know, and, and to me, the by far the, the the best of all those bands is is Quicksand of, of all those. But po- you know, and even though the so many of those songs are so you know just you know they're just these grooves that just you know are like have become ingrained in my like nervous system and 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 are amazing um i don't know that they're like commercially viable pop songs that could survive many months of heavy rotation on the radio and move the kind of like numbers of units that a song like smells like teen spirit can do, you know, or, or pick any huge band from the nineties that was drawing on the underground and, and doing their thing. Um, I think it was just, it just so happens that no one wrote that right hook or that right kind of, you know, pop song in the guise of an alternative song or whatever you want to call it.
0: I feel like with pop rock specifically, they're, one of the formulas that I've never understood was like the, the raucous bridge opening into like the quiet verse and then the giant loud chorus back to something. And I feel like what you just said about infectious pop, I think that the song structure and the way that you all collectively and then individually specifically into another I don't think that you were trying to write infectious pop songs, but I do think that because of your musicianship and obviously insane knowledge of rock and roll, you can see that the pop songs that have gotten big through the decades all have this formulaic system in some regard. So I don't think it's not within you to write the infectious pop song. I think you just didn't give a fuck to do it.
1: Right, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, if I wanted to, yeah. I could just you know, but sure, I, I understand song structure, so do all these guys, so they they all understand the the power of the the you know of dynamics and building up to, you know, some like orgasmic crescendo or like chugging along with like downstrokes and getting, you know, they, they all, everyone understands dynamics. They understand the theater of it all. And they understand how you can manipulate people's emotions with music, Um, you know, and, and, and yes, and how you could craft that into a thing that is like commercially viable. But I I just don't think that was
0: the motivation of a lot of us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. um, You guys weren't motivated by it.
1: No, the, the the motivation really it was just it was a, the labor of love and, and just making music that we loved. And by the way, song song structure exists in, in in most genres of music. It doesn't have to. There's atonal, amorphous music out there, but that's just not what I wanted to make. All the the music that moved me throughout my life, you know, even even the most kind of uh, underground and punk of it, you, you know, even like germ songs have structure. You know, they have verses and choruses and like bridges, intros and outros, and um, you know, not all of them, but most of them. So, yeah, writing a song that has a structure and has dynamics is, in no way, you know, suggests that you're you're compromising your uh your artistic integrity and just trying to, uh, you know, be Justin Bieber.
0: Something something that I picked up from the Stooges documentary was that when they were raw and visceral, they still followed the formula you talk about the theater. And it was when they got really experimental and played for like an hour and a half where they really started burning out their fans. So there is, yeah. that, there is that balance point. And for me, I was in my teens and I was just blown away by a band from our world. Like, you know, you're watching guys were like oh fuck they were all these straight edge bands now they're doing something different that was a fuck you in general back to what we talked about with the template kind of like the template culture bands because at yeah. the time when into another and quicksand were doing your own thing hardcore was probably and i know people hate me when i say it's like the the young bands that i saw i mean there was a point where you couldn't go to a show and there wasn't a million youth of today covers. I like. I made a joke that I went to a show every weekend, and there was two to three alone in the crowd covers. And they only played one show. There was such a formulaic clone war going on in the resurgence of like another wave of posse hardcore, straight edge hardcore. What do you call it? But yet the purveyors, the guys that pioneered this, were like, "Fuck you, we're over here rocking," <laughs> like, you know. And it was it was such a cool divergence. I, I experienced both sides of
1: that. I remember that uh, my band, the Numbskulls, which later became Underdog, we used to cover uh, Glue by SSD. And, but at the time we were doing that, SSD were doing like How We Rock you yeah. know, and, uh, and doing their own Fuck You. And by the way, Fuck You is the motivation for almost everything, I think, musicians who, who have that creative drive they're constantly motivated by fuck you because once it feels dogmatic and stagnant, you know, by way of what they create at, at those, you know, coming out of those frustrating little junctures is a fuck you to some degree. And, and that makes for, for good music.
0: Now, when you're, when you bring up SSD, I've, I've always seen it, in a different light, because it's always in the past, you know, it's not something I've seen firsthand. So you're saying that a lot of the stuff that would eventually be like the How We Rock, do you find that it was a fuck you? Or do you think that some of these bands were working towards like a commercially viable product? Because I can never tell. And I've seen, I've seen it be both ways. Like we were tired of being like everybody else, but then I also know that like, yeah they saw the Beastie Boys Bam uh they saw the Beastie Boys Murphy's Law Tour and like and and metal people started trying to be interested in pulling hardcore into that equation. How do you how did that sit for you? I know we're backtracking like 10 years or more. No,
2: no, no you're
1: not um yeah I mean I can't possibly know what motivates a band, but I do think in the case of well like in the case of, of SSD and that actually how we rock kind of is before like, you know licensed to ill or anyone from hardcore, like making it big. Um, I, I don't think they were trying to write radio hits. I do think it was to some degree uh, like a fuck you. I don't think they, they thought that with Springa singing these like unintelligible (laughs) lyrics and stuff, they were, they were going to, you know, become like Motley Crue big or anything, but um, yeah, it's just because I guess what I meant by being on both sides is, we were covering like, to me, there was like this canon of songs in like 82, 83 of just like minor thread SSD, you know, pick pick your iconic band from the early 80s. There were these just like, so, it was, you know, I was paying homage to to, to them by covering this song, because to me, it was like just the essence of that era. Like there were a million songs like that, that to me were just essential of that era. But you know, but at the time again, do so covering that in eighty-five, covering, you know, glue, and even though it's just a couple of years before, it's like paying homage to something in the past while that band that we're covering is has moved on kind of, you know.
0: Now what what did you follow into like what did you get your whole entire world wrapped around? when you decided to stop doing into another or 97, like, what did you, what did you immerse yourself in?
1: Well, that was a really dark, weird time because we were involved in a lawsuit. I was kind of paralyzed creatively because I was, uh, it was contractual stuff where I couldn't record or release anything for like two years. Like it was, it was brutal. It was bad. I mean, we were on a label that was owned by Disney who were, you know not nice to be in like a litigation with and um so the stuff the stuff that i was writing i never stopped writing music the stuff that i was just writing on my own was was dark and sad and and not heavy and rocking and high energy it was morose and ethereal and dreamy and dark and disturbing <laughs> And a lot of it just, you know, it, well, virtually all of it was just, just, just for me sitting in my room. Um, I did try to take some of the stuff that was more like songs and put it together into a recording. And that, that just kind of, you know, through just an unfortunate series of events got kind of like tabled and backburnered. But, you know, there are some some tracks sitting on some, uh, you know, in the form of binary digits on some hard drive somewhere.
0: Now, I always heard that there was a missing or like a recorded but never released last into another music. Is that true? Yeah.
1: It is. It was never finished. It was it was recorded, but it's missing a lot of guitars and things. But, but a lot of people have it because – Somehow these unmixed tapes, um, recordings got out into the world. I've seen it on eBay and stuff. It was, uh, it's variously called, I had a couple of working titles. One of them was Horse Platitudes, which was a play on horse latitudes by the doors, but it was horse, H-O-A-R-S-E, platitudes instead of latitudes. Um, You know uh, that was one of the working titles. Soul Control was another working title. That's the one.
0: That's the one that I've seen. It's like
1: yeah. So a lot of people have released it as that. (laughs) I just did uh for since I know I'm not on video, I just did Doctor Evil air quotes there. Um. Uh. So yeah. So this 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 unmixed, never finished album did make its way into the world. And it's very, very different from Other Into Another releases.
0: Now, for you personally, what did you immerse yourself in once live music was something that you weren't really pushing yourself into? I know at some point you would eventually do some side, like solo stuff and all that, but like what else was going on in your life besides Into Another at that point? Like when you're writing all this dark shit on your by yourself.
1: I was musically, I was actually thinking about doing something that, you know didn't necessarily have to be completely reproducible live so i n- i never lost the desire to play live but i wanted to make music on my own at that point i was driven to to write and to record music on my own that was much more about the experience of recording and taking that wherever it can go even if it meant that whatever versions I had to do of this live were going to be vastly different. So that was another way of not feeling constrained. Right. So make music that I could only capture in, in, in this way, you know, on my like little home rig and, and worry about how to reproduce it later, whether that was like how I would weirdly layer my acoustic guitar that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do even with another acoustic guitarist later or, you know, things I was doing to my voice with, with weird, not, not with like plugins and and like digital stuff, but just singing through like weird vintage amps and just, just doing just bizarre shit. It was like home studio stuff that you couldn't really get through a, a set without, you know, redoing your setup 50 times live. Um, So I I was just, I was, I was kind of fixated on this more um, subdued kind of not, not really ballads, but much softer aesthetically, but maybe darker as well um, kind of music that I was running.
0: Were you, were you someone who took a step back away from music or were you still, so this is a big part of your life. I don't see you like caving yourself off. Like what were you, where was your head at? And what were you up to once all the all the litigation and all that?
1: Um, So I started doing a lot of stuff like visual stuff um, w- with, with Jordan, I, I became his like de facto art director at Re- uh, for revelation releases for a while and did like, you know, um, just some, some art direction and, and design some like uh, some, some of the visuals for some of the releases and stuff like that. I started doing, getting into the world of, of design and, and you know uh, color separation and photography and layout and, and uh, and just started picking up like design clients, um, some in music, some in other worlds, some in startups. Um, And that morphed into becoming a, a designer and a creative director. So, you know, it's just another way to just constantly feed the, like, creativity bug.
0: Now, obviously, as the 2000s came, there was an insane resurgence of love. And I don't think that it was ever gone, but I remember it going from, like, my old heads like Hard Carl and Jamie Davis, who had a lot of love for Underdog, to being like an 18-year-old kid wearing an Underdog bootleg shirt at a hardcore show. And, you know, <laughs> and you're like, where the fuck did this kid get this shirt from? How did you feel overall when people started hitting you guys up to start playing again, a band that you had kind of put down for such a long time? And were you apprehensive because of how much of hardcore change? Or were you kind of excited to get back to doing some of that?
1: Um, it was, again, I was kind of ambivalent. On the one hand, I, it was, it was weird because I, I feel like I was always, um, I was doing these things that were, you know, were appreciated more later, you know, <laughs> like kind of posthumously. Um, so that always felt kind of strange, but I mean, even though we, we, we got lots of love when we were together as underdog, it, it's it's true in the there, when there was there was this resurgence of even more kind of passionate love for that stuff. Um I think the first, you know, time we got back together and played was in like ninety-eight. Yeah. And and uh it, it felt it felt great. I mean, it was I was definitely apprehensive. I thought, is this just gonna be like some lame reunion? You know, like I, I I used to like nine times out of ten at least up until that point in time like reunions that I had seen of bands in other genres were disappointing to say the least um, or just kind of made you roll your eyes but that kind of you know I've been lucky at least in the way I perceived it where that the way that felt and the way starting to play shows again in 2012 with Into Another the Rev twenty-five or whatever. Um, it just kind of felt like getting back on you know, on the horse. It didn't it didn't feel like we had stopped. It just felt like we paused and now we're continuing. It felt it just felt genuine and real. So that was a good thing. I think I think if it hadn't, I would have been like, eh, this is kind of weird. Let's not do this anymore.
0: This the formula that I go through when I talk to bands about reuniting and it's always the same thing like i don't think people care or what if it's just all old guys i'm like all the old guys all the <laughs> i literally i always say the same thing i'm like yeah them old guys might come out but there's an entire generation or depending on like, like there's an entire generation or more that have been just obsessive about a band they have not got to see and i remember you guys played one of the coolest the only time we did a uh, thursday show at this hardcore at the church And you guys headline, and that shit was fucking epic. And then I was like telling you, you ever want to fucking do it into another? You like we got to do it. And I remember Tim Bourne and be like, you did underdog. Now you got to do it into another. And then Rev was the (laughs) following year. And for me, I love seeing uh, bands who had, you know, thought ah, you know, people don't care. I love when they get to see the crowd in front of them, and people love their songs. And it's honestly. The, the it's a it's bigger pain in the ass as a promoter to deal with a reunion scenario because there's so many variables where you just book a band that has a guarantee it's easy but i know the electrifying feeling and the excitement and i love seeing it in the band's faces mm-hmm. like uh when i did turning point jay was like can we just open for Girl visits we have to headline i'm like i made him a promise i said if this sucks after the show punch me in the fucking face <laughs> 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 so during the first song a turning point i grabbed him i said like, you still want to fuck you want to punch me in the face And he shook his face He's like, no fucking way because he sees it that's great there's such great. a wall of emotion that comes when you put something down and you're worried if people will respect it and it was yeah. just great to see underdog in 2011 and then into another 2012 it was great to see and it, it sucks that you think about like in a post-hominus setting but because hardcore is in this weird state between the internet and just newer people coming in, and the ones who do get into the culture, and the ones that do dig in the archive, they learn about your bands, and then they have to, they have to, they have to see it. They have to see it to know it, you know. And I'm so right. glad that you got to relive that.
1: Yeah, listen, I'm so grateful that we got to relive that, and we get to relive that hopefully again in the in the future. Um, you know, my my ambivalence, my being of two minds is more about I didn't want to just go out there and, and have a suck, not, not just in not playing well or performing well, but in not being able to conjure that intangible thing, that intangible kind of magic again. And it was so – it just is so great to, to do that you know, again, at like this point in my life, and it's and it's there. It's like it never left, and and that connection is there, and that you know that vibe is there. It's it's I'm incredibly grateful for that.
0: I, I've always wanted to ask you if you felt as if some of the best things or people or bands got covered in the sands of time in any in any part of your career, but. Maybe we'll go, like, time by time. Like, in the very earliest stages, there's, is there people or bands that you think that got lost in the Stephen Blush and the different people that wrote books and they couldn't include everybody in the first ever?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to, again, it's going to be true in any genre. I mean, for me, you know, there were... There were just first of all there were just so many of these individuals um, who in in New York hardcore who for one reason or another were just legendary you know uh, some of whom went on to to attain success and get and get their due I mean like you know Ditto uh, who became a filmmaker was the guy was just it was just a legend you know and he, and he was someone who's not often talked about in like the the folklore of New York hardcore a- after like. You know the some years had had gone by but but for me there were a lot of those um you know a lot of those band, bands like the mob um and you know and i mean so many so many bands that 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 i you know remember so vividly just having such incredible experiences seeing live like reagan youth and 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 the nihilistics and the mob and Kraut. Um, I mean, just look, now it seems like people are really digging into the deep cuts and, and are discovering those bands finally. But there, there was like, there was a minute there when nobody nobody was talking about Kraut or the mob or, or major conflict or, you know. Um, so I think ultimately, you know, be, because it's not such a vast, vast scene. I, I think you know most of the people who made a little noise back then and, and were doing something special will be discovered um, by you know the, by younger generations and, and appreciated. But um, yeah, I mean, there there were just elements, characters, and, and and like I just remember characters from the scene, just people, you know, people like like Booby or big charlie i think people remember big charlie in new york but but just some people who have almost faded into oblivion and and even things like noise the show was a big deal like
2: yeah
1: you know
0: people um, have that tape but, and have been like looking
2: for mp3s that's
1: amazing. that's amazing but see but for for a minute for a long time there nobody was talking about noise the show like you know it's it's uh, Lately, I think people have really um, honed their their knowledge, their like granular knowledge of the whole culture. Um, but there was a long time there, you know, in the uh, in the '90s and 2000s, when a lot of those things and people and bands almost faded to complete oblivion.
0: As I as I said to you uh, before we started recording this. I got lucky that Ralphie Jeep and the mob moved to Philadelphia when I was in my teens. So I would run into him on a record store. And later I would work with two damn hype and chord magazine and met and Ralphie would be in the office. And so I got a lot of schooling and I still, I mean, I always felt weird because I have a, like a, like a scholastic love of the old school hardcore, but none of the bands I've ever played in would fit anything in like by the numbers, hardcore. Like when Mike Judge like, "Oh, what band you're in?" I'm like, I didn't want to tell him. I'm like, I don't want him to know. Like, <laughs> i selling <you>, like hardcore <laughs> band. But I, the older that I get, and the further we get as a culture away from this, I don't want to see the sands of time cover up things like this. And so, I think there has to become an importance where we touch on these things before it just goes away altogether. Because like, just in my time, you know, uh, you brought up Carl the Mosher. Carl the Mosher booked my friend's band when I was a roadie. And that was the first time that, like, we got like the, the band experience from CBG. He's not as a fan. And that guy gave me 20 of his, uh, he was in that band Dynamo at the time. And he gave yeah. me 27. And she was just, give, just give these away to people. I know you know young kids. And, like, he's a one of a kind guy. You know, obviously, you said you played, you get to play uh, bass with Warzone one time. Or, you know, like, Bray's going. There's so many people that are, you know, passing. Um, I wanted to ask you something because it's something, another thing that Siv always brings up. I always ask about the people that don't get talked about enough. And in that New York hardcore thing, people always bring up Jay crackdown. Yeah. And they're always like, you don't understand. Jay crackdown was the hardest Mosher. And for me, I know, you know, you see just as we talked about the culture, how things change musically, the mosh, the mosh as you, you, I'm so happy you gave us the possible origin, but like when everyone, when all the old guys talk about Jay crackdown, I'm always like, God, I got to see a video of what he does. But Verify or deny, Jay crockdown was a hard masher.
1: <laughs> he was definitely a hard masher. I mean, for me, he. There were people before him that to, to me are like legendary on the dance floor. Uh, it was a guy named Niels, who's also an amazing artist, who did a lot of flyers from back in the day. He, I mean, like he uh, and 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 Carl Masher and 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 Russ from Underdog. Yeah, you know the the shady Hades, like the like when they would really get down at A seven back in the day, um, they were kind of untouchable, particularly Neil's because he was really lanky and tall, and like his limbs were just like you know um, doing lots of damage. But yeah, yeah, Jay Crackdown for for sure, but super hard <laughs> Um It's so silly to talk well, about. Well, I, um, I
0: have to do it just because there's such a weird progression, and it comes culturally yeah. like like I, I like. If you go, if you go through time, you could see how things change. And I remember being at an into another show and there'd be people, I don't know if they were just completely fucking wasted or out of their fucking minds, but then there was people straight up ninja moshing and I could never tell how you felt seeing like on one hand people moshing hard and other people just vibing out and knowing that you came from the very origin of it, like how your perspective yeah. of what went on with shows.
1: By the time it got to like the, you know, the weird, like the Kung Fu thing and, you know, where I would see like big dudes hitting, you know, small young women in the face with like a spinning back fist by accident. It was kind of like, you know, I I think, you know, I think there are people who are motivated to do that in a kind of hey, look at me way, as opposed to being genuinely moved by the music and just like losing control. Um, I don't know. Again, of, of multiple minds about it. I, I, it is amazing to make music that that elicits this this reaction. And uh, for me, it's it's the best reaction you can elicit is where the the entire room becomes like one undulating organism. And it's just like, you know, one moving mass of people and some of them like trickle onto the stage and fly off. And more so than one guy clearing out every everybody by doing like the, the spinning fist and the, and the inside, outside crescent kick or whatever.
0: Actually, I love that you brought the organism part because I actually did a show with Cro-Mags and Cox bar in 2012 wow. And it was the first time Cox Bar ever played Philadelphia, and I'd done I'd done the the first what did they call Chromax JM now, unfortunately. But like I did the first Chromax show in two thousand nine that they would do at a church, and we had like eight hundred people packed in this room. And it was the first time since I was in my teens where I seen that organism feeling like where there was no space and everybody was organically moving, and it's such a difference compared to the regular kind of shows we had. And it took until that show again to have it. It's such a different experience. And I wonder, just as a musician, do you ever feel that the crowd at a hardcore show, when it starts getting to that level of violence, takes away from your experience as a performer?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, of course it can. If you start start seeing people who are there, you know, to like have this experience with, with your band getting hurt, you know it sucks. I mean, it's one thing if somebody like, you know, rolls an ankle or whatever. But yeah, if I if I see someone who's maybe not as large as the person doing the like, you know, the wheel fist thing, get their nose broken and blood's leaking all over the floor, definitely like takes me out of my my euphoria and interrupts the the vibe and 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 I feel shitty and and it's yeah it's it it, it can be you know, there's there's this the the kind of magical like violence in unison thing is a beautiful thing, but um, you know when it gets to the point where it's it's more about the you know the superficial style as opposed to the the true emotional reaction, then um, you know, and bad things happen to people, then then it's a
0: bummer. I, I kind of set this one up because I knew that was going to be your reaction because I, I've always wondered if people like yourself and Walter and others started getting less excited about playing shows in the late part of the 80s with you today and GB because there was a lot more Nazis and there was a lot more co-opting of violence under the guise of the straight edge stuff at that time. And I wondered if the people like you who are thinking about music and you're thinking about the emotion, if part of the, the bad vibes push you towards another reason to push you towards like playing more like an into another style.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In a way um, it's definitely, uh, you know, and that's not like giving up on a, on a scene, but when, when you see something that's cool, get infiltrated by, you know, people who are intolerant and ignorant and hateful um, after a while, you're like, you know fuck this it's so yeah there is there is that um i definitely have no no tolerance for for the fucking nazis that's the so i i I don't suffer them well and more often than not i end up you know instead of turning the other cheek you know I, i end up uh mixing it up so and i didn't want to do that anymore really so like uh Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of many dynamics and ingredients in in the wanting to do something new, something different. Um, But again, to me, it never felt like, um, I never felt like, fuck you, hardcore. I, uh, I was, it was more about feeling stifled um because of the the elements that did suck, like the Nazis you mentioned, or like the repetitious, dogmatic, you know, uh, plateauing that happened creatively. So that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, uh, I did not like what crept into some of the elements that crept into the scene in, in the late 80s there.
0: What do you think stopped you from being um, susceptible or, completely all in on the Harry Krishna stuff
1: um you know I, again I, I have I have a sort of innate aversion to to organized thought uh, for me my my exploration of of religious scripture in virtually every religion you can imagine and you know and reading um, a lot of philosophy and studying a lot of it for me, it was more about gleaning little kernels from each of these things, little gems, you know, that there is a, there's a great deal in, in, in Hinduism and Vaishnavism, which is essentially what we're talking about with, with Krishna consciousness that resonated with me, you know, the idea of, of, you know, just of, of, we as as people not we are not our physical bodies clearly you know we we are carbon and silicon and sulfur and iron and, and water and and other things but you know to this day we have no idea what animates us and makes us self-aware and makes us capable of intellectual thought and and capable of art and music or what what or what animates a blade of grass for that matter or 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 a horse or an osprey or you know so Life is a mystery and I was always mystified by it and always filled with wonder about it and looking for answers about it. Um, but I always had a, a built-in aversion to to really uh, subscribing to uh, and, and becoming part of a mass movement. And it's not because of some, you know, it's funny because like a lot of eastern religions you know one of the tenets is to sort of cast off false ego but it it, it which which i i totally uh, i i back that idea <laughs> um you know i like to be to consciously try and, and uh you know not seek out just Ego satiation, and and try to to always look within and be introspective and and search my my own soul. But it is amazing how many people who do um, who did immerse themselves in that. Um, you know, if the if there's one thing that social media has revealed is that some people still are very much entangled in in uh, ego and and uh you know and portraying a a uh an optimized avatar of themselves so i i i don't know for me uh organized thought has always had more negative than positive implications for me in my life um i I gleaned very, very valuable things from Krishna consciousness and other schools of thought and other religions from for myself and 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 for my family and the way I raise my kids and and uh, and, and the way um, I view the world and, and the universe and, and my place in it. So um, but yeah, I never, never went whole hog.
0: In in talking about ego, do you have any regret or anything that you wish you would do differently now that you're a little older and you have a different hindsight on whether it's in the bands or something like dealings with your friends from this entire time period they're talking about, like nothing directly specific.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, of course. I mean, I, I, think anyone who, you know,
0: says I have no
1: regrets is you know, either full of shit or just didn't lead a very interesting life. Um, yeah, I mean, there are million no things I would have done differently. I would, I would never want to alter, you know, the progression of time to the point where I didn't end up with like my son and my daughter and my wife and my my family that you know brings me so much joy now. But yeah, I mean, like for instance, for for a lot of the into another years because I was just going through so much um emotionally and mentally and and uh i was completely fucking insane and for most of that run i i was often a complete asshole to these people in my band that i loved so yeah i'd do that differently i was i was just like an an irritable like temperamental fucking lunatic so yeah I, i i changed that for one thing and I love those people and was, was and often treated them in ways they didn't deserve to be treated. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a million fucking things.
0: <laughs> like, well, I, I asked that. I mean, obviously I, I relate to that wholeheartedly. I was a fucking, I was also the crazy person in, in punishment. And I literally, the guys, I, I, God bless them for fucking putting up me because I was a fucking psycho. But I, I, I asked that because I remember reading, your interview in Anti Which later became antimatter, And you just seemed Conflicted emotionally And I figured Like I I knew there had to be Some kind of There had to be something With you And I think It's interesting that you say now Like yeah of course You know I was I was going through A fucked up time But um yeah. Because I, I we, only, we only saw the stage side of you You know like this fucking Insane performer But there was a There was a tense Darker thing And your conversation with Norm I was I was obsessed with that zine and I'm eventually going to have Norm on the show, and I just I just remember reading. I remember being excited. Oh, I'm going to read about Richie and being like, all right, this guy like, very tense, you know, like the interview, you know, like <laughs> very, yeah. And and his style is his style. I try to mimic at times just because I, it's what I you know like at the zines. It was one of the most interesting and introspective zines when you, these conversations. Absolutely. And so,
1: um, Norm, Norm is brilliant, and he's and yeah, he's. I love the guy.
0: Yeah. So we go from biggest regret to what do you think you're happiest, whether you're happiest or most memorable or your greatest accomplishment and all the stuff that we're, we talked about.
1: Well, I definitely am not, I'm definitely not self-important enough to, to call anything an accomplishment that I've ever done. But I, for me, the, the two things that, you know, if I, if I just look back at just, My life from thirty thousand feet. Um, Two things that I think moved me the most, um, and they're not two just two individual instances, but two things that happen from time to time when all the stars align. the few times that I had encounters with people where they would tell me how these words that I like would spill out at two in the morning crying or whatever resonated with them and touched them and would tell me this in, in, you know, would get, would, would, would give me anecdotes from their lives and, and would, would, would talk to me about the ways in which, these you know, this bearing of my soul that I would do and then would feel really vulnerable almost to the point where I regretted getting that like intimate and and fucking fruity and weird. They would tell me that 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 I spoke to them directly and and moved them. Or, you know, um there's just this this connection that sometimes when when it was when someone would say something like that to me and it was real and this connection i would have with that person and this feeling of of kinship and and mutual empathy and stuff that would happen was really fucking trippy and amazing and heavy um and and that has happened a few times and, and the other would be like you know certain certain times when just the stars align and it's not it's not just down to like a good sound system and good monitors and a, and a, and a hyped up crowd there. There's magic that happens sometimes when, you know, this room full of people gets together and, and, you know, they're, they're in it just as much as I am. And we're all like, we're all just part of this thing that happens this euphoria that happens for whatever it is, an hour and 10 minutes. Um, there are some of those that happened along the way in my life of, of just getting on stage and, and doing those, you know, 50 to 70 minutes that were just, you know, so, so euphoric and cathartic and, and not just euphoria, every, just this, this range of emotions that I would experience and would feel you know, reverberating back to me from the other people in the room. Um, that, you know, t- to this day, like, you know, sometimes I close my eyes and I'm back in that place and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, um, uh, just something metaphysical and beyond, uh, you know, this, this universe for me as, as, as grandiose and weird as that sounds. So, yeah, I don't feel like accomplishments, but I feel like this these connections I've had with individuals and with rooms full of people that have really, really deeply, deeply touched me and moved me throughout my
0: life. Well, I feel like as someone who has been in some insanely important bands, you have touched so many people. And I could completely relate not to being the person holding the mic, but putting the show together that everybody gets to converge on like that moment where you see the guitar player, look at the drummer, like, Holy fuck. Meanwhile, there's a like hundred kids storming the stage to yeah. sing along. There's nothing like it. And I, I've always said the most beautiful thing about a hardcore show is that it's only, every hardcore show will only happen once you could book yeah. the same bands three nights in a row in the, in the same room. And each show is going to be different. And it's one of the most special kinetic feelings and emotional feelings. And it, a lot of it's doing our community and culture. And so the biggest part about me having you on the show was that you span this entire time. And that's a credit to just not only your talent and your commitment to hardcore, but just that you have a drive to stay with this. You know, like I always found it interesting. There's guys who are like ah, pack it up the bags in 82. Oh, it's over. I see, you know, like this is what it did. What do you think kept you this whole time?
1: Well, well again, I mean, I I guess it's because I never really just signed up for one kind of like one phylum in in, in that world. I always kind of drifted around in the fringes, but 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 really I love music so much and I love the magic of live music so much and for me nothing has ever felt as as visceral and impactful as what happens when when hardcore bands play no matter how far i've drifted from that scene in the things i've created um You know, like that that feeling I had seeing the the bad brains for the first time at Max's or the feeling I had, you know, the first time, you know, I played out with with Underdog or with Youth of Today or or, um, you know that that's that's something so special and so and and so rare. And uh, I, I I feel you know so grateful to that world and, and 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 that scene as a as a as a whole scene as a global scene but is new york hardcore and all the regional scenes and the people i've met and uh you know the, the things i've learned from from it and from the music and from all those characters and and all those friends and and frenemies and enemies it's uh you know i have I have so much love for that scene, and it's and it's something real and attainable. It's not some, it's not some far off thing that I, I just see through the lens of major labels and like you know Rolling Stone and Cream magazine and stuff. It's it's something that I was part of, and it's something that's DIY, and it's something where people, you know, used to pile into a van and 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 drive all over the continent, uh, you know, making this music on, on a shoestring. And like, um, so, yeah, I, I just, I, it's something that I will always cherish and not just love and feel a tremendous amount of uh, gratitude for and loyalty to.
0: No, I feel I've seen bands in a very short time go from being exactly what you're talking about, shoestring budget, small to being very commercially successful and they turn their back, and I've never seen that with you. And there's always been an earnesty in what you're putting out on stage in any regard. And I think that's uh, important. I think that's an important lesson for anybody. You know, it's like the way that the way that you have shown us be throughout all your projects. There there is an earnesty and a connection with your crowd, and it's not like, hey, fuck you, I'm gonna go back and do the rock and rock and roll thing. There's like a emotion that pours out. And that's really why I wanted to have you on the show, and I and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, is there anything else you want to add to all this? Is there anything? Um, is there, I know you're not a social media guy, so I'm like, hey, let's plug your thing. But is there anything you like to add? Yeah. Any like closing thoughts or anything like that? Uh,
1: I mean, I maybe maybe some closing thoughts. I mean, first of all, thank you, thank you, Joe. This was, this was really great, and this was uh, definitely not the cookie cutter template conversation. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate you putting this together as just a, as just a real, uh, genuine conversation. And, and, and I think we, we went lots of places and covered a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, all I would say now is, you know, I, I honestly feel that we are in a, uh, we're we're living in a sort of dystopian, like graphic novel together, all of us. And, I do think the world is on the brink of another mass extinction. And I think we all need to wake the fuck up and, uh, and, and address that, you know, I want my, I want my kids and their kids to have a habitable planet. So uh, for me, the shortest, most direct route to that is to stop supporting uh, animal agriculture. And I'll, I'll leave it right there.
0: Richie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, I really look forward to having you back on the stage in any incarnation. I don't care if you just stand up there and say, Hey, I'm Richie. And, um, <laughs> I just really appreciate, really appreciate your honesty and going deep. And, um, thank you for the comment. I really just didn't want to be the nineties theme where I show up with 10 questions. And no matter what question one was question two was coming. And I, and I knew so much about your music. And from the time I asked you, I, I was just like jogging my mind, make sure I had to just so that way we had, um, an interesting conversation for so many people to listen to. And I really appreciate you taking part in it.
1: Thanks so much. Joe. I really appreciate it.
0: No, nah, man, this has been awesome. And um, I, I will not put your social medias up there, but I probably in our show notes, I will link everything to into another and to underdog. And just because, cool. and, I'll, and I'll leave your personal one out. They got to Google to find you. And um, thank you for being <laughs> on the show.
1: Thank you, Joe.
0: I really, really hope you enjoyed that one. I had a fun time talking to him. And his story is absolutely fantastic from the very beginning when he was in the Psycho Billy bands to the reasons he resonated with Bad Brains and what that turned into for hardcore and how he shifted the focus away from the corny carbon copy straight edge bands in 88 and 89 and, you know, shifted the world to focus and stuff like into another it's absolutely a fantastic story, and Richie's a hell of a guy, and it was great to hear him talk for so long. Next week, we go into Walter Shreffels. Now, when I had hit him up, he was like, yeah, I got plenty of time. And we were rocking and rolling, and we get into the meat of Gorilla Biscuits and what he started to leave. And he looks at the watch, and he's like, holy shit, I, I got to get ready to go. I didn't realize this went so fast. So... We don't have such a comprehensive all-over Walter story next week coming for you, but we go deep in his beginnings and what would take to be in bands like Youth to Today, Warzone, and then, of course, Gorilla Biscuits. And I really hope you enjoy it. Remember that we have a Patreon page now, and you can check it out. We're going to have all the links. You can always tell people about the show. And, of course, go to our website and check out the podcast episode pages. They have links. They've got extra stuff. It's TIHC podcast. We'll bring you to all that. Thank you. and I'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.